Thank you to all who have worked on getting this Holberg debate together. There's been a lot of planning. Thank you to Oli Sammo, Solve Stornes, and thank you to my dear pal of many, many years, indeed decades, Ellen Mortensen. And thank you all, uh, and thank you also to Bjorn Enger Bertelsen, who's taking over uh, uh, next year. And they're with us here in the studio. And thank you to all in the beautiful, rain-soaked city of Bergen. And to the entire kingdom of Norway, of which Bergen is the only true capital city. And to all the princes, princesses, principalities, potentates, potentialities, actualities, angels, archangels, thrones, dominions, cherubim, seraphim, the demonic powers of Norwegian black metal, Odin, Freya, and Loki, by the seven stars, by the old gods and new. Welcome to the Holberg de de debate today, tonight, from the heart of New York City, La Grande Pomme. And thank you also to Edmund Kuya, creative director of SA Studios, where we're gathered here on 28th Street, in Manhattan, in the heart of fashionable Chelsea. I think it's 26th Street. 26th Street. Yeah, 26th Street. Oh, yeah. There's no need for introductions. You know who these three people are. And two of them have already been playing Curtis Mayfield tracks, uh, which is why you are watching this. We have with us on live video link from Brazil where he lives and does his amazingly important and hugely influential work, the Pulitzer Prize winning lawyer, author, and journalist, Glenn Greenwald. Who? Welcome, Glenn, it's very nice to meet you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited for the event. Who, according to his 44-page Wikipedia entry, did an undergraduate <laughs> degree in philosophy, and there might be a connection with one of the other participants in this uh, debate, which it just came up 15 seconds ago. And here, live in the studio with me, are two of the most important, most widely read, most discussed, most interesting, and best dressed philosophers in the world. They also happen to be friends of mine, and I'm proud to add now colleagues at the New School in New York. The incomparable and incredibly funny Judith Butler. <laughs> People often don't see the you. So funny. From whom I've stolen so many ideas. <laughs> we used to teach uh, tragedy, Greek tragedy together. And the blues man, the life of the mind. The man who teaches us that in the face of catastrophe, we require courage. In the face of catastrophe, we require compassion. We require vision. And just a little bit of P-Funk, Uncut Funk, The Bomb, Dr. Cornell West. <laughs> oh, God, you shouldn't have asked me to do this. <laughs> Let's get started. Uh, let me explain the flow of the event. There'll be 10 minutes of opening remarks from each of the three uh, speakers, where they will be invited to respond to the question of the debate which is identity and culture wars. It even sounds angry. Identity politics, culture wars. And uh, we will then move to discussion, which I will try to moderate. 
Uh, I have some questions, but more importantly, we've received lots of fantastic questions in advance through the Holberg information matrix. And I will ask some of these. We've received a lot of questions. I have, uh, I have them in front of me. And uh, I'm sorry if you don't get to ask the question that you sent, but I've read them all and they're very good. And then we'll have two minutes of closing remarks from each of the participants before the event ends. Judith Butler was asked in an interview with the New Statesman, they really should change the name of that magazine, about the toxicity of the contemporary cultural climate. And Judith replied, I think we're living in anti-intellectual times and that this is evident across the political spectrum. The quickness of social media allows for forms of vitriol that do not exactly support thoughtful debate. We need to cherish the longer forms. We need to cherish the longer mm. forms. This is true. Uh, so we need to slow down and think, think freely, think openly, think without fear. And the Holberg debate allows us a chance for a longer form. And what does one philosopher say to another philosopher? As Wittgenstein said, it's not a joke. What does one philosopher say to another philosopher? Take your time. Right? Mm. So here we'll be able to take right. time right. together and think through this issue. Personally, I'd like to use this occasion to get us to think about the state of the world, of which identity politics and culture wars are symptoms, not causes. These are symptoms. The causes, are, we can get into that. But I'd like to think about the larger issues as well. We're not journalists. We're not working for The Guardian. Uh, we don't have to make headlines here or be controversial. We can be thoughtful, take our time, and try and understand our time in thought, which, of course, is another definition of philosophy. It's exciting, right? It's exciting, this. So let me read the event description, and then uh, I'm going to invite uh, Judith Butler to speak first, and then uh, Cornell West, and then Glenn Greenwald. So let's just remind us uh, what we've been asked to think about here, and um, this is how it goes. It's got the, the question for debate, as it were. Is identity politics a force for good? A fierce debate over social justice and identity-based politics seems to have exploded in recent years in the Western world, and few areas of life remain untouched by cultural conflicts. To some, to some identity-based politics has been embraced as an effective strategy to combat discrimination and marginalization. To others, it may seem that identity politics has resulted in culture wars involving violent conflicts and a destructive exchange of labels. Identity-based politics often relate to volatile issues such as abortion, which was very much on the agenda in the United States, this Supreme Court debate, Mississippi law on Wednesday, I believe, homosexuality, transgender rights, pornography, multiculturalism, and racism. Identity conflicts also involve fundamental orientations such as religion and ideology, as well as political issues ranging from freedom of speech to distribution of wealth and privilege. 
wealth and privilege. Debates on these issues have challenged established views of equality and brought about an alternative demand for identity-based equity as a better approach. And that's something I want to flag as a question in the air, and a lot of the questions that came in were on that issue. Mm. What is involved mm. in the movement from equality, this value of which we can talk about the history of it, to equity? What is involved in it? What does that mean? Um, and is it a good idea? Even the term identity politics is itself debated, as many will contend that it is inherently biased and used by those who oppose struggles for social justice by marginalized groups. So should we even be talking about this? I guess it's a mm. big question. Mm. Elephant mm. in the room. Regardless of one's position on the current culture wars, it seems apparent that they involve both struggle for social justice and struggles for power. And that is what we're, brings us here today. And the question is the following. Does identity politics, as it is currently manifesting itself, offer a suitable avenue towards social justice, or has it become a recipe for cultural antagonism, political polarization, and new forms of injustice? So that's the question we can begin by thinking about. And I'd like to ask Judith to kick us off. Great. Thank you, Simon. I'm um, very pleased to be here with you and with um, Brother Cornell and with, with Glenn, far away, but nevertheless very present. Um, I, um, I'd like to start by calling into question the framework. Uh, and I suppose that's a typical thing to do, or perhaps um, uh, you may have expected that by inviting me. <laughs> uh, but but I, I really uh, worry sometimes um, when I hear criticisms of identity politics because it's not only it's not always clear what is what is meant by identity politics. Mm -hmm. um, and um, for instance, if uh, identity politics is the struggle for gay, lesbian, trans human rights, or if identity politics is um, a struggle for racial justice, mm -hmm. if identity politics is um, a, a demand to have architecturally accessible buildings, uh, public and private, on the part of disability activists, do we say that, that those examples um, are identity politics? Is, the defense of abortion rights, identity politics, if it includes arguments about women's lives, their freedom, their movement, uh, their capacity. Um, very often, I feel that, um, that social movements on the left are grouped as identity politics, even though they do not always argue on the basis of identity. In other words, mm -hmm. the, it's, not, it's not just a question of, oh, of claiming this is my identity and I deserve social and public recognition for this identity that may be in the mix. But usually it's I am living in a world uh, in which justice, a democratic ideal, a, a, a hallowed uh, political principle has not yet become justice for all. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I talk about 
racial justice, am I talking about identity or am I saying that whatever forms of justice we're living in have not yet benefited from um, the emancipatory movements that seek to um, uh, establish racial justice as part of justice? Um, I mean, maybe racial justice because becomes something else or gets relegated to a position of identity politics because it, it, it questions something about the abstract idea of justice. But maybe what it's questioning is who's included in that abstraction and who's not. And how do we get to the place of having justice as something that is all-encompassing and that is uh, justice for all? I mean, what would it mean to arrive there? It, may well be that racial justice asks us to rethink justice. Racial equality makes us rethink equality. Um, sexual freedom asks, asks us to rethink freedom. Freedom for whom? Who's, who has not yet been free? Who has not yet known freedom? Um, it seems to me that these are large principles uh, mm -hmm. that belong to any democratic project, especially a radical democratic project or politics, and that um, we are most often talking about rethinking freedom, equality, and justice, making, making it stronger, making it more encompassing, making it more substantial, less abstract, and less exclusionary. So that's, that, that doesn't strike me as a, of a, as a particularism, like, oh, here are all these identities, they're struggling for their particular interests, they're taking away from the common good, they're taking away from a universal framework. They're taking away from a larger sense of politics. No, I think it is the larger sense of politics that's being uh, identified as exclusionary. And there's a call for a re-articulation of those basic principles. So they are justice projects, freedom projects, and equality projects. Um, and when we dismiss them as identity pro projects, we we're clinging to an older ideal and not looking at it, the exclusions it has made, the effacements on which it has proceeded. And, um, and we're holding to a status quo that actually does need to be uh, radically challenged. Now, I have one other point uh, as part of my introductory remarks, and that's the following. The largest, most uh, influential and dangerous version of identity politics that we are living with in this world is white supremacy. That is an identity politics. That is the defense of whiteness. That is the defense of whiteness as superior, the defense of whiteness as the norm, as that which doesn't even need to be marked as part of the norm. And the, the neo-fascist trends we are seeing, the hyper-nationalism we're seeing, the border uh, violence, the border closing, the border violence that we're seeing throughout Europe. These are, these are racist projects of states that are uh, very often promising to uh, their um, people a restoration of white supremacy, a defense of white supremacy against racial and ethnic and religious uh, diversity. And uh, so I think um, that we often uh, imagine that identity politics is a fragmenting process that the left is responsible for or that has happened inside the left. 
um, but actually the largest and most uh, most noxious, most uh, most destructive one is is white identity politics, which which takes the form of asserting white supremacy either explicitly or implicitly, and we need to get wiser about how that's happening and how we might oppose it. Mm -hmm. So do you see identity politics as a kind of a stalking horse, as a kind of a sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we can talk further mm -hmm. about um, about uh, the st struggles that we're seeing in social media and struggles among movements, um, uh, uh, and 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 what 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 is disturbing about those struggles? What is helpful about those struggles? I'm happy to do that. I'm just not sure identity politics is the term that can describe those struggles. Yeah. Um, and I. Um, I also think uh, that um, it's a way of not listening. <laughs> it's like call it identity politics, and then you don't have to listen because you've got your category already. You put it in that category. You don't have to listen to what folks are saying. Yeah. So that worries me. We say the same thing about culture wars. Well, the thing about culture, I mean, if we have a a, a movement for Black Lives on the streets, is that about Black identity, or is it about racial justice, or is it about the legal system? Is it about institutions of violence? Is it about the police? Why do we call that cultural as if the cultural is separable from issues of violence or institutionalization or state power? Uh, I, I, I think that when we separate off the something that we call merely cultural, yeah. uh, we're making uh, sometimes a false, um, a false uh, distinction, right? If, if, um, if trans people believe they should be uh, able to walk the streets, uh, any street in Poland or any street in Hungary without, or Brazil, without harassment or um, uh, arrest mm -hmm. or violence um, or potential criminalization or pathologization. Are we talking about identity politics? That, oh, those are, po those are cultural politics that belong to trans people? Or are we saying, hey, this is public space. This is, this is a public freedom movement through the streets. That's a, that's a public freedom. You know, take back the night. Was that just women, women's identity? Is that cultural? It's like, no, no. This is actually about uh, being able to move freely in the world without violence. Now, that's, that's not merely cultural. That's, a, that's about our bodies in public space and what our substantial freedoms are and how societies organized either to let us exercise that freedom or to stop us from exercising that freedom. If someone says, oh, that's merely cultural or purely identity, I'm thinking they're not listening. Yeah. We can get into this, I mean, get into this more. But the, I mean, when I was doing some research on the history of the idea of culture wars, it's, you know, you can take it back to Kulturkampf, you know, the German it, it, late 19th century, but really from what I was uh, what I found out was there's a book by James Davison Hunter, 1991, Culture Wars, which is always, always about the definition of America. The issue is always about how do we, how, that we've lost the soul of America, how do we get it back, and we've lost it in these culture wars. And then I think Pat Buchanan used it in 92, Culture Wars, and it begins to be increasingly politicized then, and then we're, we seem to be back, back there in some way. So, there's an issue about these very terms we have, identity politics and culture wars. So thank you, Judith.
going absolutely. on? Absolutely. Well, what I say you? I want to say just how excited and joyful I am to be in conversation with the three of you. And I want to thank the Holberg Committee for having the, uh, the vision of bringing us together. I think people need to know that um, when you're looking at my dear sister Judith, you're looking at the greatest philosophically grounded critical social theorist in our time. That's part of the intellectual piece, and that's real. You're looking at the grandest existential philosopher, wrestling with <laughs> and you're looking at the most courageous and consistent intellectual in the world of journalism. So that we're gonna have a good time. <laughs> oh, yes. We're gonna have a good time. But I want to begin really with um, uh, the great Henry James and his letter to Robert Louis Stevenson, when he said, "No theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing." And I would say the same thing about language. I would say the same thing about philosophy. So one of the tests of talking about identity politics, what does it blind us of? Mm -hmm. Cultural wars, what does it blind us of? Now, all of us have blind spots. I mean, Adorno reminds us to splinter in our eyes the biggest magnifying glass. And he gets that from Matthew 10, New Testament. So that the sense of coming in with a spirit of humility and recognizing the lens through which we view any situation becomes part and parcel of how we think critically. So when Sister Judas began with an interrogation and a scrutiny of the very framework of identity politics, that's where I also want to begin. I think that's very important, you see. Because you see, for someone like myself who comes out of the black freedom movement, I've never viewed myself as part of any talk about identity politics. See, Frederick Douglass and, and, and Martin King and Fannie Lou Hayman, Ella Baker, they weren't part of identity politics at all. The black freedom movement is a species of the human freedom movements of every corner of the globe trying to affirm their dignity and as a Christian I'd say sanctity and therefore be part of struggles against structures and institutions as well as self-critiques of themselves wrestling with white supremacy inside of them, male supremacy inside of them, anti-Jewish, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim elements inside of them. And so the question becomes, okay, if we're going to use the word identity politics, the question becomes, what is the moral content of one's identity? <coughs> There's a variety of different identities one can have that lack a moral substance. There's a variety of identities one has that have an ethical and moral substance. And then what are the foreseeable consequences, especially political, of the kind of politics that flow from that? For those of us who are fundamentally committed to the change, the deep changes in our structures, it could be predatory capitalists. It can be empires that are still around, the Chinese empire, the American empire, and so forth. You see. It could be concerns with the rich humanity of non-binary precious folk, or precious gays and lesbians, or peoples of color. Those are not buzzwords or PC chit-chat labels, but rather precious human beings who are trying to look for what every human being is, has a desire for in the face of death, which is for protection, for association, and for recognition. That goes all the way down to each and every one of us. 
so that when we look at the talk about identity politics, we want to give us a genealogy. Where did that come from? Mm. Is this simply a neoliberal version of black freedom, woman freedom, gay freedom movements that are sanitizing and losing sight of the deeper issues of human suffering and human social misery in the face of dominations, in the face of lies told about them? Because white supremacy is a lie that hides and conceals crimes. Same is true with male supremacy and the other ideologies that I, that I mentioned, you see. So that's my starting point. Mm -hmm. Because in any dialogue for me, and here I'm with Gottimer. We were talking about Gottimer. You know, he's mm -hmm. one of my, one of my deep uh, uh, influences and teachers. He says, well, traditions are unavoidable and inescapable. And the, and the question is, what kind of tradition you're going to situate and locate yourself? Now, he's got a traditionalist understanding of tradition. So he's got he's a conservative sensibility. I've got a much more subversive conception of tradition. So I'm talking about traditions of critique and resistance. But there's still tradition. And I'm just a small instance in that tradition. I want to be true to the best of that tradition. I want to be true to what the Harriet Tubmans and Martin Kings and W.B. Du Bois's are concerned about. And what were they concerned about? How does integrity face oppression? How does honesty face deception? How does decency face insult? <coughs> How does courage meet brute force? And so the criteria is always going to be integrity, intellectual, spiritual, moral integrity. Yeah. It's going to be honesty, intellectual, moral, and spiritual honesty. It's going to be concerns about courage and concerns about decency. And in the end, that means I look at the world through moral and spiritual lens. I hope I didn't go on too long, though, brother. <coughs> yeah. So for you, the issue of identity politics, the, the issue that we, you know, here to discuss, becomes a question of um, moral and spiritual integrity. Absolutely. Which, for you, is always linked to solidarity. Absolutely. That's that's the. So in that sense, the, these words, identity politics, culture war, these are symptoms of something which... Uh, and looking at the world through the least of these. You see, I begin with the genius of Hebrew scripture, right? It's the spreading of that hesed, that loving kindness, that steadfast love to orphan, widow, fatherless, motherless, those persecuted, those subjugated. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the best. I mean, the worst of Hebrew scripture, the Canaanites and other things, we know this is the best and the worst. But I'm talking about the genius of that Hebrew scripture, you see. Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes, what do we mean by spirit? By spiritual, all I mean is what the great Rabbi Heschel understood was, namely, indifference to evil. That's spiritual decadence. It's callousness to those who suffer. Mm -hmm. That's spiritual decadence. Yeah. And what is the lack of morality, lack of integrity, honesty, decency, and courage? And so when we think of identity politics, we'll say, okay, let's give it a chance. Here's the test. If you can meet these tests, you can call it almost anything you want. But you're probably not going to end up calling it identity politics. It's going to be struggle for human dignity and freedom mm -hmm. against adverse circumstances, the structures of domination, and various ways in which ideologies debase and devalue and disrespect people, you see. And that is a challenge which is as old as the species. Mm -hmm. As old as the species. 
because I think when Hegel called history a slaughterhouse, and when Gibbon called it a story of human crimes and follies, they were not completely off. Most of human history is a history of hatred and greed and domination and subjugation. And we have these magnificent moments of interruption and disruption, of a smile, of a touch, of a laugh, personally, of love and relationships, and then democratic possibilities in which you broaden the scope of who actually ought to have be a, play a role in shaping the destiny in the public sphere of any social regime. And so in that regard, um, you know, I have a rather uh, a dim conception of we human beings on the one hand. Baldwin used to say we're walking disasters. Yeah. But Baldwin, using the language of Ibsen, he said we're also miracles. <laughs> we're miracles and disasters at the same time. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's, what, that's what Nora was saying. I was looking for a miracle. Don't hold your breath, Nora. We're talking about uh, A Dollhouse of 1879, that great uh, pioneering text of the first great work of modern drama. That in the whole book, we were actually contractually obliged to mention Ibsen, at least. <laughs> we, 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 well, we we've ought two, to, no matter two what. Yeah. But we ought to mention Ibsen in Harlem. We ought to mention Ibsen <laughs> in Chicago, because Henrik is that, that, that crucial. But most importantly, it is this wrestling with um, this darkness inside of us and the darkness in our society, and how do we cast a light, just a flickering light, a flickering candle, to keep those traditions alive that are concerned about that light. Before we turn to uh, <coughs> Glenn Greenwald, just a, a question maybe on the, I mean, defining terms. So identity politics, as I understand it, was uh, first used in the, the Combahee River Collective, who were a socialist, feminist, black socialist feminist group in operative in the Boston area between 1974 and 1980. I think it was first used in 1977. So we have that. And as I understand it, again, from my you know, reading and research, there you've got an idea that the, the issue there is um, acknowledging the place from which you come to enter right. the political arena. Honesty, so just yeah. honesty. Which is identity. Which In, is who intellectual you? honesty. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So to, and that, we have that, that history of identity politics on the one hand. Then we have, in a sense, what that's become, the kind of, if you like, the perversion of identity, yeah. identity politics as a trope on the right, usually, to name something. And um, mm -hmm. margin, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Let's move on. To Glenn Greenwald, if you would care to uh, say some, make some remarks, please. Yeah, so uh, first of all, thank you so much to the Holberg Committee for inviting me to be a panelist alongside two of the scholars, Dr. West, Dr. Butler, whose work I've admired for so long. It's really an honor to uh, be asked to participate in this conversation about an issue I regard as <clears throat> incredibly important but also very complex. And, and like Judith and Cornell, I actually think it is important to start with the question, since it's the topic of what do we mean by identity politics? And to me, it is one of those terms that eludes any precise definition, any sort of platonic 
form. It reminds me a lot of the words terrorism or even political labels like liberal and conservative. They kind of mean everything and they mean nothing. And they sort of get defined through their functionality rather than as, as fixed terms, making them a little bit elusive to discuss. So I think what we do have to focus on is not so much what do we mean by identity politics in some abstract sense, but how is it being deployed? How is it being um, used in, in our discourse and in our politics? And I suppose you can look at identity politics in its most benevolent form in a way that is quite positive. And I, I, for me, I, I use my own life as a prism in which to understand and identity politics in its best and its most admirable form. I, you know, the formative experience of my life was coming of age as an 11 year old or a 12 year old in the early 80s with Ronald Reagan and the moral majority in their political ascension, learning and discovering that I was gay, having no idea what that meant at a time when homosexuality was almost never discussed publicly except in association with an actual literal disease that was horrific, where the images were mortifying of people emaciated and dying and nurses afraid to care for them and internalizing the idea that it was not just a metaphorical sickness, but an actual sickness that had defined my identity. It's an incredibly difficult burden for anyone to, to have to internalize and try and navigate, let alone someone who doesn't have the emotional skills to try and process something like that. And my whole life has been defined in some way by that societal inequity going all the way to 2005, which is pretty recent, right? Not the 60s, not the 80s, but 2005. I met my husband in Brazil. We fell in love, decided we wanted to be together. But at the time, there was a law in place called the Defense of Marriage Act enacted only in 1994, signed into law by Bill Clinton, overwhelming bipartisan support that barred the federal government from granting immigration rights or any other spousal based rights to same sex couples that opposite sex couples automatically would receive, which for us meant at the time that if I had fallen in love with a Brazilian woman instead of a Brazilian man, she would have immediately gotten a green card, we would have been able to live together in the United States, but because it was a he and not a she, there was no possibility of living in my own country with the person who I had decided I wanted to live my entire life with. Um, and so we were forced to, to stay in Brazil. And obviously being in Brazil, most people don't weep for you when you say you're forced to live in, in Rio de Janeiro, but the injustice of that was a major factor in my life. And, and you know, now I have not just a same sex marriage, but an interracial marriage, an interracial family. We have uh, two sons we've adopted, a third child for whom we have guardianship, none of whom is white in a country where systemic racism is a problem. We have to have those kind of conversations about why it is that when they leave the house, it's urgent that they have their identification, even though the white kids they're playing with don't need that. It's because the police will stop them and be suspicious of why they're there when that's not true of their white uh, friends. And, and so the idea of combating those sorts of injustices that are based on demographic identity and group uh, and, and group uh, membership to me is not identity politics. It's what Judith said earlier. It's identity politics that have fostered those injustices. The idea that heterosexuals have rights that gay people don't, that white people have 
privileges and are expected to be treated a certain way that non-white people don't. Combating that to me is not identity politics. Combating that to me is 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 warring against identity politics, this kind of tribalistic uh, notion of justice that some groups are entitled to rights and privileges to which other groups are denied. And that's the kind of identity politics to which to the extent that label is applied to that, they don't think among decent people by definition is particularly controversial. I think any decent person by definition is opposed to the idea that what race you are, what sexual orientation you are, what gender you are should define what your rights and privileges under the law are or even under cultural and social mores. That doesn't mean everyone agrees with that. I mean, every decent person by definition agrees with it. And I think polls show and legal changes show that increasing numbers of people do agree with that, that we're headed certainly in the right direction, whether fast enough or not, we're certainly, that's the, 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 the progress we're making. And like any progress, it's generating some backlash, but I think even with that backlash, it's still on the right path. What I, where I think identity politics gets trickier and more problematic is when it ceases to be about ending those kinds of categorical privileges and where the perception at least is, if not the reality, that it's about fortifying them, but maybe in different ways. In 2018, I, I interviewed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, during her primary run against then Congressman Joe Crawley. And it was at the time when almost nobody knew who she was. I know it's impossible to believe there was ever a time in our lives when no one knew who AOC was, but I promise you there was, it was very recent. I interviewed her um, when when she was unknown. And, and one of the questions I asked her, she was a young Latino woman challenging a white male incumbent. I asked her, what role should identity politics play in your election? What role should your race and his and your gender and his play in the decision that voters in this district make when deciding who they should send to Congress? What is your view on identity politics when it comes to those kind of questions? Should people vote for you because you're a Latino woman and he's a white male? And she said, look, my view of identity politics is, of course, diversity and representation matter. But the concern I have with it is that it's so often used as a deceitful Trojan horse, is what she called it, that status quo centers of power can recruit different faces that look like they represent change because they're on their surface more diverse. Mm -hmm. But in reality, they become tools to protect the status quo, to create a false perception that there has been a radical change, when in reality, they're actually there to strengthen the status quo. I think the election of Barack Obama in, in 2008 was perhaps the best illustration of that. Again, no decent person could have been anything other than emotionally moved on January 20th, 2009, to see him and Michelle and their two daughters walked into the White House, given the race of the United States. But then the next eight years was very much a kind of continuation of the neoliberal order of the Democratic Party. It was a historic event in one case, but it not only didn't radically change much, but in a lot of ways, the appearance of that kind of change was weaponized to entrench the status quo further. And I think this has become an increasingly potent tool of institutions of authority. 
one of the most disturbing for me was two years after we did the Snowden reporting in 2013 and 2014, showing that Western intelligence agencies had instituted a program of mass surveillance in 2015, the GCHQ, which is the British counterpart of the NSA and more extreme and, and even less legally constrained than the NSA, if you can mm -hmm. believe there is such a thing. It's sort of the kind of yappy bulldog that the United States farms out its surveillance wishes to the British when they can't do it themselves. Literally bathed itself in the, in the rainbow flag. They <laughs> lit up their futuristic, creepy UFO style headquarters in the rainbow flag and said, we have had famous gay code breakers who we drove into suicide at the time. And mm. now to kind of rehabilitate our image, we're going to celebrate our LGBT employees. The CIA releases videos celebrating Women's Day and the diversity of their uh, agents, corporations, put Black Lives Matters logos on their Instagram page. And it dresses up these pernicious institutions with a mask of benevolence that doesn't actually change what's underneath. So mm -hmm. one thing that concerns me is its weaponization, its cynical weaponization in many ways. And then the other concern I think that a lot of people have, myself included, is that sometimes the discourse that emerges from what may be well-intentioned and benevolent efforts to end certain kinds of discrimination have the effect or maybe even the intention implicitly or by or explicitly to be divisive further in how we think about different groups that we talk not about humanity meeting on its common ground but this group or that group being inherently more violent inherently more uh, domineering in a way that i think is encouraging people to start to judge each other not as individuals, but as members of groups, like we did 50 years ago, but maybe with a different formula. And, you know, I guess to me, the ultimate objective is when I think about the success of Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign, the shocking, improbable success of a campaign with no money, no institutional support that came very close to defeating the Clinton political machine and probably would have absent interference that wasn't particularly ethical on the part of the DNC, what the success was, it brought together people not based on demographic identity, but based on a multiracial working class coalition, which to me, in terms of defeating the excesses of militarism and imperialism and corporatism is our only way out. And I'm concerned at some points that discourse that's intended to or is dressed up as social justice is further dividing us along these traditional categorical lines or demographic groups in a way that's making that ultimate goal more elusive than ever. Thank you very much. That's very, uh, very compelling. The, um, maybe we could think a little further on that issue that the um, there's a tweet that you've from Glenn Greenwald from, from August August 20th, 2020, which I'd like it. I'd like to link it to something they also found in uh, in Cornell. Uh, the tweet goes: contempt for it on the merits aside, one has to acknowledge the propagandistic genius of exploiting harmless to power identity politics 
as the feel-good cover for perpetuating, perpetuating and even strengthening the neoliberal order and further entrenching mm -hmm. corporate and imperial power, which sort of echoes kind of some of the things you were just saying now. And linking that together, which this is a remark that I found, a, I don't know where I found it, from Cornell, where you're talking about the Democratic Party in particular, uh, identity politics presented by the Democratic Party as this progressive cutting-edge tool to make the class hierarchy and the imperial hierarchy more colourful with all the talk of diversity and inclusion. It makes it seem like they're on the cutting edge because they're concerned with everybody in life, which is not the case. And this, I guess mm. the issue now is that you've got, we have, we have, there's the issue of, um, I guess, the Democratic Party, and there's also the issue about, you know, what happens when corporations, institutions, universities, museums are all so woke, right? And, and uh, we'll, we'll use uh, BLM and the rest uh, to, as, as marketing, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, what, is, what, what is the, the, the question, a, Norway, a question that was sent in, uh, maybe this, this, this would focus it. It's a short question. Question 37. Question of 37, thank you. Which is, what is your favorite alternative approach to identity politics? What do you recommend instead? And because something that comes up in Glenn Greenwald's uh, uh, interventions that I've been looking at closely of late, and also uh, Cornell and Judith, I'd like to know your views on this, is really the, the uh, indictment of the corporate media. Right? And, uh, and the way, in a sense, they're fetishizing certain identity claims, mm -hmm. certain identity politics, in order to, 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 to look as if something is being changed when nothing is, nothing is changing. So, absolutely. What do you, what do you think absolutely. about that? Maybe we would like to. Just Judith, wanna, you want to jump in before I say something? Um, mm. <laughs> well, it seems to me that, that maybe it's important um, to. Uh, mark three different uh, categories uh, that have come up so far. One, um, I suggested there's a, a right wing or reactionary um, or conservative or uh, smug liberal <laughs> dis 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 dismissal of identity politics as fragmentation. And I suggested that, that we, we need to ask whether white supremacy is the, um, the the largest and most destructive form of identity politics, and also, um, is it true that what's being labeled identity politics is is identity politics, or are they are these these radical movements for justice, for for equality and freedom? And then, it it seems to me that that Glenn has also given us now a second uh, way of thinking about this um, neoliberal. Uh, corporations uh, are using multiculturalism or the rainbow flag or even Black Lives Matter as logos to signal or, or um, um, advertise uh, their, um, uh, their inclusivity, but they are still engaged in exploitation and extractivism in, mm -hmm. um, in other mm -hmm. ways of destroying our, our mm -hmm. planet and our, our um, and prospects of employment, especially uh, for poor and working class folks. So 
So there's that. But then there's a third issue which Cornell has raised and um, which we might also think about in terms of the, uh, the history of black feminism, which is um, who, who's, whose lives have been degraded or whose lives have been effaced? Who's, who's, whose perspective has not been heard or not included? Like, so for instance, here, here we are and we're all very pleased to be here, but I was mindful that we, we don't have a woman of color in this conversation and what difference would it make, I would ask, to, to have a woman of color here? Now, you might say, oh, that's identity politics, but maybe not. Maybe this kind of exclusion is a patterned one. Maybe we could look at many institutions in which that exclusion is taking place or where intellectual dialogue is assumed to be taking place against uh, among, uh, among men of color and queer folk uh, <laughs> and uh, well-meaning white people um, uh, but we, we don't have that, that perspective here. Now, it's not a single perspective. It's a whole history of positions, and mm. anybody who reads in black feminism knows that there are lots of struggles and conflicts and different ways of proceeding. But you know, one thing Angela J Davis has always uh, asked us to consider is uh, when you're invited to be included in an institution, like it could be a corporation, it could be an educational institution, it could be a government post, you have to ask yourself whether that is the kind of institution you want to be part of or not. Inclusion by itself is not an absolute good. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be included in a fascist regime. We don't want to be included in an anti-Semitic regime. We don't want to be in included in mm -hmm. um, uh, forms of capitalist, capitalist and corporate um, um, industries that uh, are destroying the earth and depriving the indigenous of their of their their lands and their livelihoods. So inclusion itself is not adequate as a goal, right? It's not adequate as a goal. And mm -hmm. and it can be deployed in the way that Glenn uh, uh, suggested. But this this third category which Cornell designates as spiritual, I want to say the experience of effacement of not being in the picture, of not having a presence publicly, intellectually, socially um, politically, um, and the, the, the patterned or structural ways in which those exclusions take place, we, we need to think about that as part of social, political, economic inequality. And, and, and so um, I think the black feminist critique of inclusion, and it's a strong one, mm -hmm. um, is precisely uh, a refusal to accept Identity. Don't don't take my identity and advertise your corporation with it, <laughs> right? Like, mm -hmm. let's right. let's be critical. Let's be radical about what we what institutions we want to be part of, um, and 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 what ones we really don't want to be part of. And um, and and what what's the criteria for that? I mean, those are brought, those are not identitarian criteria. Mm -hmm. We're not just you know, people are not just saying, oh, if it includes me, then I want to be part of it. No. That's not right. right. Um, it, it actually, uh, some, some institutions should be brought down, and we should be involved in dismantling them rather than mm -hmm. begging to be included in them. Absolutely. And if, we, if we're not able to think that way, we can't think critically. So identity marks that exclusion, but it also links, links it to um, uh, this, this sense of debasement, this, this sense of not having the capacity to express spiritually, 
uh, in a free way, in a way that, uh, that feels living, um, uh, uh, one's history, one's position in society, precisely because that has been effaced or demeaned in some ways that have been in, radically insufferable. So I, I think we need to take seriously um, that domain. And, and mm -hmm. I think it's the more substantial and important dimension of identity claims, um, uh, identity claims that are made in the service of broader political projects uh, that, that should not be dismissed and that are, are, are not just the effect of uh, appropriation or mm -hmm. um, uh, because in your in your in, 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 in your work as I read it, um, and I, I brought some with me just to, no, it's, it's, it's a sense which which because I was reading it again this week and it just sort of it it it's the end of the the force of nonviolence which is a, a book of Judas from twenty twenty which is a really powerful uh, book but at the end of it you really pull things together into a series of pages and it's a theme which is elsewhere in your work and it's, it's, it's very important, it seems to me. Uh, and you're talking about vulnerability. Uh, you say to avow vulnerability not as an attribute of the subject but as a feature of social relations. It does not imply vulnerability as an identity, a category or a ground for, for political action, rather persistence in a condition of vulnerability proves to be its own kind of strength. And that's part of an argument about um, nonviolence, and nonviolence as, as force, mm -hmm. force of nonviolence, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and, uh, and what you call at the end a kind of a, a rageful love, militant pacifism, aggressive nonviolence, a radical persistence. So it's, I mean, there in a sense you're we're, we need different concepts. Vulnerability, grievability, these would be, in terms of a kind of, how would you put it, the kind of um, imaginary of equality that you, you, you've outlined in your work, mm -hmm. these concepts might actually do some, be more useful, more powerful. Um, yes, but maybe there's a, a way to re-describe what we're talking about so that we understand people who are struggling. We can think about indigenous struggles, for instance, um, against Bolsonaro in uh, in Brazil, or we can we can we can think about indigenous struggles in 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 this in this country in this region on these lands. Um, there is both a history of victimization and slaughter and genocide, and there is also a history of persistence and of keeping certain traditions alive and keeping certain political demands alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thinking about how that, that history of suffering um, works with, a with, a, with, a, with an insistent political movement which also has invariably a spiritual dimension, mm -hmm. maybe even the spiritual is not quite disarticulable from the economic, especially um, in uh, anti-extractivist politics in Brazil, for instance. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not denying the history of suffering, nor are we saying that these folks are determined only by the history of suffering, uh, but it would be wrong to efface that in, um, in the name of uh, some kind of uh, neoliberal uh, agency 
that is attributed to them. No, their their political power, their political movement emerges from the suffering. It's like they know they know where it came from. They know what how it's being continued, and they and they struggle and gather, and they also make and this is extremely important uh, solidarity with any number of groups mm -hmm. that are also Absolutely. struggling against corporate power or brutal prisons uh, or state violence or the failure of states to intervene um, uh, uh, when there is violence against uh, women, uh, trans people, LGBTQIA people. Um, uh, so so I, I want to suggest that um, uh, sometimes we, we hear that uh, uh, a group just defines itself as a victim, but even that moment, like, Defining, defining your victimization. I mean, the definition of that victimization is already an assertion of a life mm -hmm. uh, that Absolutely. has the power to define, to mark, to, to persist. To and, persist then, yeah. and then the question is, what is wanted? Does that victimization get made into identity itself? Or is it part of the process of demanding repair, demanding justice, yes. demanding Absolutely. freedom? Absolutely. So I, I wouldn't want to take... Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want a political vocabulary that takes vulnerability or victimization out or even suffering out. I think we, we actually need much more acknowledgement of all that. But we also need that acknowledgement to be in the service of radical transformation. So it's about making it dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, we haven't really talked about solidarity, but I, I do believe that expanding solidarities is... Um, is the future of the left, quite frankly. And if, um, if some older left wants to retrench itself and, and uh, reinstall white men at the, at the helm um, and make, uh, other, make, make a variety of oppressions into secondary or tertiary, they're never going to win. They're never going to mm -hmm. win. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because even mm -hmm. class, even class goes across color. Like, how is class lived? as race, right? We have that question. How is race lived as class? Paul Gilroy taught us how to, Paul and Stuart Hall, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they insisted, and intersectionality within black feminism insists on that kind of questioning. So we, we, need, we need to actually open up to new social movements and to hear what they're saying and to find ways of linking if our movements are going to be transnational and, and fulfill radical ideals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, would you like to pick, pick any of that up? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm finding this conversation fascinating. I'm, you know, doing a lot of thinking as I'm listening. I think one of the things that Judith said at the very beginning um, is something I just want to focus on for a second, which is noting the lack of women of color participating in this conversation and what impact that exclusion might have or that addition might have on the conversation, to me, this gives a really great window into the complexities of how we talk about identity politics. So you can certainly imagine that if you were to, you know, we obviously have racial diversity and gender diversity and sexual orientation diversity and other kinds of diversity on the panel. It's true we don't have a woman of color. So how would that, how might that, how does that exclusion affect the, the discourse? How might its addition alter it? It depends a huge amount on which women of color you decided to integrate into the conversation. So we could, for example, imagine that 
we invited Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams to participate in the conversation. They would be a woman of color. That would maybe change the conversation in a little bit of a way. Maybe it wouldn't. You could pick Nikki Haley or Tulsi Gabbard or Condoleezza Rice or Candace Owens, all women of color. That would probably change the conversation even more. Um, and then you could pick, you know. It wouldn't just change it, brother. It would be more impoverished, but go right ahead. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not saying it'd be better or worse. In that's fact, right. that's exactly my argument, right? No, I just right? want to be explicit is, is, about what the impact it would have. Yeah, and, and maybe, and I think in some senses, it, it may not have an impact, um, depending on who it was. And, but, and then you could imagine, for example, picking someone who, who isn't well-known, who's, you know, somebody who's a single mother and unemployed or works as a construction worker, as a police officer, who's a woman of color, who probably would bring a vastly different view than any of those other people that I named and would change the conversation in much different ways as well. And so I think it's, 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 it's difficult to predict if you say, well, what, what, would, what would our conversation be like if we added a woman of color? Because the range of views that a woman of color would bring would be so wide ranging depending on who they are and what their, their position in life is. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that always interests me so much is if you look at elite discourse about, say, law and order and the police and this kind of, you know, slogan that arose in the last year from the, from the, the murder of George Floyd of defund the police and the like that has a lot of currency among kind of a elite guardians of discourse of all races. And then you, you look at polling data of poor communities, black communities, brown communities, and you say, do you think there should be fewer police in your communities, more police or the same amount? The overwhelming majority of people in multiracial working class communities will say, I want the police in my community either as much as they are or more. And very, very few will say I want fewer and I think as well that when you look at the lack of diversity to the extent you want to analyze them in the panel, you can, of course, say, well, there's not a woman of color, but there's also not someone who, say, is a, a member of the working class. Um, oh. I grew up in a working class family. I, um, okay. I grew up in a working class neighborhood. But, you know, <laughs> we, let, but let, let's be real. Let's be real about what our lives currently are. You know, we're people who have spent a lot of time in elite academic institutions who have a lot of career and economic stability because of that. So you could bring a working class person into this discussion as well. Somebody I don't mean who has working class origins as, as I do and, and I believe probably everyone here to some extent does, but someone whose life right now has been defined by being a member of the working class and all of the hardship that that has entailed over the last 20, 30 years, a white man, for example, from a town with shuttered factories and opioid overdoses. And that would bring an entirely different perspective as well. And, and, and so I think when we talk about diversity, it is important to think about the full range of diversity and not just uh, a certain kind, because in so many ways the life in America is, you could certainly argue, defined at least as much by one's class as by one's sexual orientation, gender, or race. And I feel like a lot of times in identity politics discourse, that gets overlooked. I mean, the Go danger on. here, yeah, the danger here is, again, you know, once you slide down the slippery slope of labels and various personal categories, 
then you're missing out on not just the quality of the conversation, because I believe with Adorno, the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. You can talk about the suffering of other people without being a member of that group. You can have a deep concern without being a member of that group. So you're right about what kind of person it would be in that sense, and be able to make sure there's a variety of voices. I mean, that's what the Negro National Anthem is. The black people lift every voice, not echo. We don't want extensions of echo chambers. We want quality voices, right? But quality voices is not reducible to one social position. It just isn't. So that on the one hand, I'm with Sister Judas in terms of making sure that we've got heterogeneity, variety, and diversity. But if we end up fetishizing diversity, then we end up with just a counting game. That's the last thing we want. I look at the world through these lens. One fundamental question. How do we cultivate the capacity of the species to, to avoid self-destruction, given ecological catastrophe? That's a needful question. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender or sexual orientation you are. We don't have a planet that make a whole lot of difference what, what, what identity you have. The second is, how do we cultivate the capacity to preserve the best of democratic experiments that put poor and working people at the center because we live in neo-fascist times and democracies are waning in terms of their substance? Those are fundamental questions. I don't care what color, gender, and so forth you are. And then the third is existential. How do you fight off despair and despondency and self-violation and self-destruction? Because we live in dim and grim and bleak times. One of, the, one of the challenges of the people who wake up, if you wake up and you see how dim things are, you might want to go back to sleep. <laughs> like Rumble still skin, you see? Waking up is not the necessary sufficient condition for being an agent of a force for good at all. Not at all. And if you stay woke forever, you're going to suffer from insomnia. <laughs> you got to fortify yourself and be a long-distance runner in the quest for truth and beauty and goodness and so forth. So that it seems to me that when we talk about uh, the lens through which we view things, all the talk about identity politics and cultural wars, they're going to have to adjust to how one defines things. You don't define it through those categories. And if those categories in the end are, don't, don't meet the test, they need to be called into question. Mm -hmm. Even when we talk about white supremacy as identity politics, I can't accept that kind of neutered, sanitized, sterilized, deodorized language. White supremacy <laughs> is barbaric. It is monstrous. It is calamitous. The Ku Klux Klan is not identity politics. These are gangsters who are lynching people. Let's just call it for what it is. You see, once we get into this kind of Orwellian talk of well, you know, and they lynched so-and-so, that was an identity part. No, that was thuggish behavior on behalf of people who hate people of color. Or the same was true with women, people who hate women. We have to use our language very explicitly yeah. here. And, and, and we can't pull back, but in doing that, we've got to keep alive the common ground of the overlap of our humanity. See, for me, as a revolutionary Christian, that means that I got strong connections with revolutionary humanness. Because we're talking about our humanity all the way down. And white supremacy is simply one particular barbaric way of perceiving the world that loses sight of the rich 
humanity of indigenous peoples and black peoples and brown peoples and so on. And let's just call it that. It's not, it's not identity politics in this vague sense. It's not even just cultural wars, mm. Mm. you see. Okay. And so the real challenge becomes, you know, how do we hold on to a language that's clear enough? There's always going to be some levels of obscurity in it. Clear enough and then test ourselves. And that's where I'm I call in the question the name calling and the finger pointing. Because we all in some sense are complicities with the ecological catastrophe. You see, the more colorful empire, the black face at the head of a of, of an American empire called Barack Obama that people were breakdancing about and couldn't say a mumbling word about drones being dropped on children in Somalia and Pakistan. And we can go on and on and on in that. Give him a peace prize and he got seven wars going on. Please. That level of hypocrisy is so overwhelming. And yet you can still win prizes for the New York Times talking about it. You see, that's the thing that needs to be called into question. That's part of our intellectual vocation. Mm -hmm. That's part of our calling in the life of the mind to tell the truth, expose the lies with a spirit of fall fallibility and humility. And then get in trouble. Because we all, all of us, get in trouble a lot. That's a compliment. <laughs> Especially from a neoliberal establishment, believe me. <laughs> um. I mean, if, if I may, um, it, it seems to me, Glenn, that you, um, you demonstrated why the idea of formal inclusion doesn't work, uh, mm. that formal inclusion could be infinite. We could keep you know, producing categories oh, no, no, of people no, no, no. who've been excluded, and then we would be all day trying to include them. Um, and and that's, that form of inclusion strikes me as, um, as, as a... A, a display, a kind of advertisement of mm. multiculturalism. It's not necessarily uh, um, thinking about the, the, the history of social movements or the future um, struggle that we have before us to um, counter all, all the destructive forces that we are up against right now, and there are many. Mm. Um, but, you know, what if we took a different attitude, like, oh, I wonder... Um, who in the academy has written on identity politics and culture wars and who, who, who has some things to say about this? Well, maybe Kimberly Crenshaw has been talking about that her whole life or maybe Saidiya Hartman would have an incredibly interesting perspective mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe mm -hmm. Christina Sharp or maybe uh, Gina Dent or, you know, any number of people would come to mind um, who would has been working on this for a long time and have things to say and have published and are invested in this. Now, on the one hand, we could say, oh, well, they should be part of any conversation like this because we need a black woman, oh, anxious, white, white anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, uh, that's not the point. The point is that we can't have the conversation we need to have without people who have thought about this, who bring a different kind of history and perspective to it. So, you know, I... I agree with you that there are um, uh, uh, ma manipulative and, and, and false forms of inclusion, which is why inclusion itself is not the ultimate goal. Right, um, right. But I also think that what we call identity is sometimes um, a point of departure for thinking about a history mm -hmm. um, and also a struggle against defacement, a, a struggle against degradation, mm -hmm. and a struggle to exist. Now, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, don't you, don't, you don't exist when you're called the right name, but you stand a chance of existing more than you have before if you're called the right name. Mm -hmm. um, 
And politics can't just be about, oh, let's learn how to call each other the right name. Uh, that would be mm. a very narrow mm. idea of mm. politics. Then we would just be offering kind of narrow linguistic recognition wherever we go. On the other hand, if I'm never called the right name, mm, that doesn't really work, or someone doesn't recognize uh, something fundamental about my history and situation in the world and just calls me a human like any other, I'm like, ah, that human never included me. That human mm. might be part of the problem. And I mm -hmm. would imagine that Cornell's mm -hmm. humanism is, re is revolutionary, radical. Humanism would have to revise uh, most, if not all, of the ideas of the human that have come down to us because they have never been, because uh, the human has worked in, in the service of the very effacement we need to overcome. So, um, and then I'll just say one last thing. It's like, I agree with you that white supremacy will never be adequately described by the term identity politics. Mm. At the same time, how do we describe that defensiveness? Like, this world is mine. Yeah. This world belongs to me. It always did. If you look at Zemmour right now in France, mm -hmm. right? He's putting out these videos. He's running for president. He's a, he's a reactionary. And he's basically saying to white people in France, mm -hmm. uh, nobody's saying this out loud, but you feel it just like I feel it. Um, this country no longer belongs to us. Look at all these people who are in our streets. Look at what mm -hmm. they've brought. And then the picture of the hijab, the picture of black men walking down the street. It's like the, we have been overtaken. We are being replaced, right? Yeah. So there, it's a, it's a really strong petition to white nationalism and to a sense that, that whiteness um, is, is, a, is, is, is a prerogative to own public space mm -hmm. and to have itself reflected exclusively in public space. Now, I want to say that that is a kind of um, uh, identity fascism, <laughs> identity yeah. nationalism, yes. that basically yes. wants um, to have the world reflecting its identity and to expunge all elements that interfere with that exclusively white reflection of self. So, I, 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 I mean, identity politics doesn't do the work of the description we need, I agree with you, right, but it is right. an identitarian politics, which is why one of the groups that goes out and pushes migrants back to North Africa or lets them, lets them drown in the Mediterranean is called identity. Yes. That's no, a no, right-wing, white nationalist group. But, but what's the difference, though, my dear sister, between calling identity politics as opposed to monstrous tribalism immoral nativism. It, 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 it's situated into the larger history. I mean, the age of Europe itself, yeah. 1492 to 1945. Yeah. An age in which the European colonial empires are reshaping the whole globe in their image and in their interests using the same language. Yeah. You see it in Conrad. You see it in Graham Greene, which is to say, it, once, we, once you use a different term, it makes it difficult to keep track of the longer history that goes all the way. We're talking about the worst of Europe, not yeah. the best, yeah. but the worst of Europe. So that in that sense, it is identitarian. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's not surprising given the worst of the age of Europe, in which it's precisely that possessive sense of my land and yeah. my body and, yeah. uh, and somebody else's body there. Yeah. 
their, their possession and uh, so forth. You I, think. I would, you, I would you agree. agree with you, but here you both have used the term tribalism, yeah. which I find interesting, and I generally don't use it just because mm -hmm. I get worried. Like, um, are, we ta are we saying that contemporary fascism or hyper-nationalism or white supremacy is a, a barbaric and pre-modern problem and that we right. are regressing Precisely. to a pre-modern form of sociality when yeah. no, we see that. Point. And that's also, what point. about actual tribes? Point. What about uh, native tribes? I mean, there's some pretty serious contemporary politics about tribal rights and about the destruction of tribal inheritance. Right. Uh, right. and, and, and the stealing of tribal lands. And I kind of feel like That's when true. we use the tribalism term as something pre-modern, we we're imagining that the modern or the, uh, the, the, the late modern is, is, should be more civilized. And I, well, I mean, no, I know you yeah, wouldn't no, use I that. Wouldn't I know that. you're yeah, not going there. No, I know you're going, not going uh, exactly. there. Exactly. I read but too I, Jonathan but, Swift for that. Yeah, I'm on the I, edge of misanthropy sometimes when it comes to how human beings no, come no, together. No, with I'm with you. I'm, <laughs> I, I know that. But, <laughs> oh, but if we say it's a recurrent, like, if we say white supremacy is recurrent, or we say that, that fascism is recurrent. Refashioned. Right, but it's got to also be understood as historically specific. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, and, I'm with and, you on that. And some of the movements we're seeing are anti-feminist and anti-LGBTQ and yes. anti-immigrant and anti-progressive uh, racial justice. You know, so these are reactionary formations that have their a very specific. They draw. Absolutely. They sure they draw from absolutely. the former forms. That's my point. I'm making. But they're constant. They're but getting they're, constellated. They're, Absolutely. Okay. They're being reconstituted yes. with absolutely. Okay. But nothing novel is wholly novel. Yes, I'm with you there. Uh, oh, God. Since the history is very important. I'm, very I'm with you there. Can, can, can I interject here for a second? Or, yeah, or do, you have a, do you have a question you wanted to get to? Because I just wanted. Yeah, so uh, I th just a couple of points. Um, you know, on that on the issue of how we think about diversity and, and, and diversifying thought and the like. For me, journalism provides a really interesting window into some of the difficulties. One of the big changes in, in journalism over the last, say, six to seven decades is the corporatization of journalism. Mm -hmm. And with that has meant that, you know, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, without romanticizing that era, it was often the case that journalists didn't have college degrees at all. Um, and yet now, in most national newsrooms, they've made great progress, not enough, but great progress, diversifying from the perspective of race and gender and sexual orientation, you know, huge increases in the number of women um, in black and Hispanic and gay people working in the major newsrooms, the major national media outlets, and yet almost all of them, the percentages rapidly increasing come from the same set of 30 to 40 elite colleges. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder, you know, as we celebrate the diversification of newsrooms, um, whether that really is a diversification of newsrooms in the sense that if you look in, 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 in the modern United States at say a white woman, a white woman and a black man who grow up in an upper middle class neighborhood or even a rich neighborhood with parents who are partners at Goldman Sachs or ophthalmologists or, or venture capitalists, go to the same schools, live in the same neighborhoods, end up working in the same job. 
obviously there's going to be some difference in their experience by virtue of the fact that they're different. They have different identities from a perspective of race and gender. But I think you can make the argument that their experience might actually be more similar than, say, the white man who grew up that way and ends up at that job versus a white man who was born into a you know mining town in uh, the Appalachians and lives in a town in Pennsylvania where opioid overdoses are overrunning the town and has to work three jobs at Amazon and Walmart and has no health insurance and has no ability to start a family, lives with his parents because of economic deprivation. If you're not including, if you're not including people like that in the conversation and in the discourse and in the newsroom, to what extent are you really diversifying, um, and to what extent are you kind of doing a more superficial form of diversity that, though valuable, certainly better than the alternative, is almost like a way of avoiding the more difficult kind of diversity. That's one point, and then the other point I wanted to make just about the kind of far-right populist backlash that Judith was talking about in France, but we've also seen it obviously here in Brazil, where you know Brazilians for four straight elections voted for kind of a left-wing, certainly center-left party, the Workers' Party, founded by Lula da Silva, a factory worker, a union leader, and then suddenly in 2018 went all the way over to the other direction mm -hmm. and voted for a far-right figure, an authoritarian, Jair Bolsonaro, it's something we've seen repeated over and over, after eight years of President Obama, people voted for Donald Trump. Millions of people twice voted for Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. And we can kind of look at these trends and say, you know what this is? What this is? This is white people engaged in racial backlash and resentment politics and anxiety over losing their privilege, having their kind of racist impulses stimulated by saying, look, we're being replaced, as Judith said. And definitely there's a part of the appeal of these movements explicitly aimed at that. But I think we also have to consider that Trump and people like him or Marine Le Pen or Jair Bolsonaro or Brexit and Nigel Farage did not appear out of nowhere. They were the byproducts of an ideology that has destroyed the economic security of millions and millions of people who feel as though the elites, whatever racial diversity or gender diversity you want to put on them, no longer really care about their lives. And, and that perception, you could certainly argue, and I would argue, there's validity to it. And I think one of the most interesting dynamics is if you look in the United States and you would read elite discourse over four years about Donald Trump, being kind of the new Hitler, a white nationalist, somebody who does nothing or little more than stimulate the worst bigotries among us, you actually see an increase, a big increase in Hispanic support for President Trump and for the Republican Party, some mild increase in, in the support of African-Americans, though certainly much smaller, overwhelmingly they're still voting Democrat, but it's going in that direction. And I think we have to be careful that we don't kind of take this reductive explanation of why these this kind of populist nativist politics is finding success. We can call the people who support it racist, say that they're just concerned because immigrants are entering the country, because Muslims are entering the company, the country, Africans are entering the country. 
But I think in doing that, we kind of bury another factor, which is that neoliberalism has been an incredibly cruel ideology on an economic level. And this anti-status quo, anti-elite sentiment that is being, that is driving a lot of it and that their demagogues are successfully tapping into, in a lot of cases, isn't racism, as evidenced by the fact that it's getting multiracial support, but this kind of growing cleavage between elite discourse over here and the lives of ordinary people over here. And I think kind of just dismissing it away with a simple explanation or a kind of one-stop shop explanation that these are just racists concerned about their racial privilege um, doesn't tell the whole story and might actually make it more difficult to combat, to, to understand what the appeal of it actually is. There's, there's no doubt, but this is one of the reasons why um, my dear sister Wendy Brown, one of the grand radical democratic theorists, teaches us not either or, but a number of different factors. You got the colossal failure of neoliberal elites to be able to deliver to poor people. So you get escalating protest wealth inequality. That's in part what Brother Bernie was about. And that's not reducible to race, but it has a xenophobic element. It has a white supremacist element. It has a homophobic element. It has a male supremacist element. You can't lose sight of that. But there's a crisis of legitimacy. Neoliberal elites, be they at Harvard, Pentagon, Silicon Valley, or uh, 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 anywhere else, they had the, they're the target of a certain kind of contempt. Yeah. Fox News has it, but it's deeply neo-fascist more and more. CNN doesn't have it. They're in the bosom of the neoliberal project. You see? <laughs> Our dear brother, Sister Amy has it of democracy now. Thank God for Sister Amy, <laughs> right? But it's a, it, it, it's a left critique of it. But the problem is, is that there's a sense of impotence. These neoliberal elites keep reproducing themselves, no matter how many folk hit the street, mm. no matter how many critiques they receive. Yeah. They just push it on, just keep, keep going. And that's where the despair comes in. Mm -hmm. And once you have folk giving up and caving in, then you've got neo-fascist possibilities because you got financial elites sitting back, you got military elites sitting back, and they're the ones who really need to be focused on when you're talking about just neo-fascism. Yeah. It's just not everyday people. Yeah. It's these elites behind in, in the United States, they're imperial elites. The 800 military units around the world, 53 cents for every $1 going to militarism. They're the ones sitting back and saying, this disorder, this anarchy, this chaos is getting out of control. <laughs> you see, and that's like, that's Plato's Republic. The tyrant yeah. is about to intervene. Democracy is failing. Yeah. That's where we are. And you, you think I'm going too far? No, I'm just, liking it. <laughs> this is what's frightening about the moment. That's why we got to keep a smile and some style. Yeah. Because I mean, <laughs> you ain't lying. We got to keep swaying. Oh, no, this a little bit too, because in, in Glenn Greenwald's interventions, I've been watching a lot of your videos in the last couple of weeks. Um, the target is increasingly the corporate media. Right? Mm. Uh, and in a sense, what okay. you said about journalism is, is very important. And also to add to that, the Mm -hmm. the misunderstanding of the relation between journalism and activism, right? mm -hmm. increasingly, which is leading to an increasing kind of narrowness right. of, the, of focus. The truncation. And it's leading to journalism, your former employer, The Guardian, you feel like you're being hit over the head with a stick. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's exhausting 
It's exhausting. And I wonder what you think about that, the fourth estate. And I was thinking about this also without wanting to make matters too uh, controversial, but why not? Um, your video after the, the Rittenhouse uh, verdict, which I was looking at, I look at the other things you said. It's, it's very interesting because um, you're, what you're arguing for there, you're, what you're arguing against, this is something you were saying in one of, one of, one of your interventions, uh, there's a new civil religion in the corporate media, a new, or in the group, a new civil religion. Um, and against that, you are uh, claiming a, a freedom of thought, right? Uh, you know, even quoting Bertrand Russell and, and figures like that. And very interesting too. And the um, and with the Rittenhouse verdict, what you what you were arguing there is uh, due process law, evidence, uh, jury, mm. you know, all, so on and so forth. Yeah, but due process of law. Um, and uh, I imagine you got a lot of heat for that. So um, how do you see that? I guess the issue of the corporate media would be one way of focusing it. And you've had your dealings with that over the years, to say the least. Yeah, you know, I, well, growing up, um, my heroes, kind of political heroes, were Daniel Ellsberg, who, who leaked the Pentagon Papers and was widely vilified as being a Soviet agent. And then the Jewish leftist lawyers of the ACLU, who, with the support of civil rights leaders at the time, a lot of people have forgotten about that, decided to defend the right of actual Nazis, like Nazis wearing swastika armbands to march through Skokie, Illinois, a town not over, just overwhelmingly filled with Jews, but survivors of the Holocaust, people who had actually been in the camps 25 to 30 years before. And, and to me, that both of those episodes represented a principle that I believe continues to drive what I do, which is that institutions can't be trusted, human institutions can't be trusted to constrain what we think, how we speak, who gets imprisoned, who gets ostracized without all kinds of checks and all kinds of safeguards because humans are so susceptible to, once they get power in their hands, abusing it for improper ends. And I thought the Kyle Rittenhouse case was just a very vivid, window into how we talk about so many of these issues. Um, I personally never talked about the Kyle Rittenhouse case because, and this might be the lawyer in me, I just know that when things are getting litigated on social media or in the internet or through the media, so often there's no way to know what the truth is until you actually sit down and watch the trial. And that's something I did from start to finish. And my ideas of what had happened were so radically disparate from the media presentation of it. Um, and I, I was disturbed that a lot of people seem to kind of have a bloodlust to put this person in prison who didn't actually watch the trial. They sort of saw him as a symbol. I don't think that's what the justice system is for. And the thing that bothered me the most is there were here in Brazil, for example, the leading media outlets. I don't mean small ones or blogs. I mean, the, the, the biggest and most prestigious media outlets, the New York Times of Brazil, which is fully of Sao Paulo, Globo, along with media outlets around the world, all had the same false view of, of the Rittenhouse case, not right after it happened, but during the trial as they were writing articles reporting about what was taking place, which is many of them went with headlines that said, 
young white man who shot three black men waits for verdict. They had thought that the people Kyle Rittenhouse had shot were black when in fact they were all white because they obviously had gotten this impression from somewhere and that somewhere came from the corporate media, which had created a kind of narrative about this case that was when you sit down to watch the trial, in my view, widely disparate from the reality. And so, you know, maybe that's probably just the lawyer in me, the civil libertarian in me, which always wants, is always going to side with due process, safeguards on the ability to, for the government to put people in cages, demand that they show a high level of proof because my politics is steeped in a suspicion of the ability of corrupt institutions of authority to abuse their power if they're not heavily scrutinized. So I think that's where a lot of that came from. Thank you for that. Now I've Absolutely. got, but I, is this time, is, is, is this time, is, is, is this 151, is this how long we've been going for? Oh, how much time we got left? Nah, I just want to get clear. I'm looking at this uh, clock here and uh, Cornell, okay, okay, Cornell. Now I'm just going to say that, I mean, one, I, I resonate with Brother Glenn's libertarian sensibilities <laughs> because in the face of, of dogma, you always have to have Socratic dialogue that's robust. But there is a difference between talking about due process and rule of law, and I believe in fair trials. But there is a moral dimension that also needs to be, to be noted, because you know and I know. You know, they had the law on the slavery, they had the law on the Jim Crow, law on the... Jane Crow, law on the Nazi, law on the apartheid. So law in and of itself is still weak and feeble. Putin's very fond of If you don't have a moral <laughs> critique of it, you see. And so you have to be able to keep track of both so that the rights of a, of a written house must be protected. There's no doubt about that. The liberties must be protected. Right. But at the same time, people have a right to say the due process is such, it's such a truncated procedure that you can't even get at some of the truth that's going on. That's true. And you had to have a, 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 you have to have levels of discourse to keep that in mind. But in addition to journalism, I want to say one thing. I think, because uh, I think, I think about my dear brother, Chris, Chris Hedges. You know, I think Chris Hedges is one of the powerful intellectuals who had to leave journalism because he said it's dead for the most part. You got you and a few others. You and Amy and a few others. You can almost count them on your hands. Because the levels of conformity and complacency of a market-driven journalism is so overwhelming, you can't even call it journalism anymore. And if that's the case, then you become like Chris Hedges. You become a historian. You mm. become something else to be a truth-teller. Mm. And one could say the same thing about philosophy. Yeah. You become something else. Mm -hmm. Well, you build on philosophy, but you're doing something else. Was Adorno a philosopher? He was a doorknob. <laughs> Period. You know what I mean? He was a great piano player. Yeah, well, he did that too. I'll go. Not as good as that was I either. I just like to address something yeah. that I I feel maybe links um, Glenn's remarks with Cornell's, uh, mm. because Glenn, um, I I think that mm -hmm. you have um, suggested to us that um, uh, corporate powers and their um, decimation of basic liberties is, um, is, is a really key framework and that that gets lost uh, when we um, start engaging in multicultural debates of a certain kind. Mm. And then you also suggested to us, suggesting you might be a, I guess, a left libertarian, maybe you wouldn't 
disagree with that, but you've also suggested to us that class remains unscrutinized in many of the uh, debates on inclusion um, and that it's extremely important to remember that. And class now, I guess the third point would be class now has to be understood in terms of um, uh, uh, neoliberal elites um, and the production of Mm-hmm. and circulation of neoliberal elites within universities and within the media suggesting that the diversity problem is is a, is is not the one that we've identified and may need to be thought about differently at the same time you know i think um, that one of the things that neoliberalism has done is uh, is uh, evacuated uh, the ideals of social democracy or democratic socialism it's decimated social services and right. it's um, it's also decimated protections for the environment so the sense of destruction the fear of destruction that people are living with and that Cornell has mm. uh, identified so powerfully that sense of destruction takes a lot of different forms yeah yeah and we could say that racism and anti-immigrant politics and anti-trans politics and anti-feminism are just uh, expressions of uh, secondary expressions of a of a of a of a primary sense of fear of destruction. Like, you know, mm. where where did the, where does the fear of destruction go? Uh, are, are are people misidentifying the fa- the gay families as the force of destruction? Are they misidentifying gender as a source of destruction? Are they misidentifying Black Lives Matter or trans rights, I mean, uh, or, or migrant rights? Uh, mm. uh, you know, and we, and we could say all, all that is uh, secondary or even epiphenomenal. Um, but I think that might be, uh, that might be too quick mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, it is true that the, we are all living with the fear of planetary destruction. Oh, yeah. There's just no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what are the forms that takes? We could say uh, that our uh, that that the racism we see is a is an expression of that. But maybe we have to think more carefully about that conjunction, right? That anti-migrant, anti-gay, lesbian, anti-feminist movement as it. Um, coincides with or interlocks with uh, a neoliberal economic uh, 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 form of governance that has decimated social services and put a huge amount on the family and put a huge amount on local communities and put a huge amount on local churches. Absolutely. Right? So what gets generated within, within the evangelical church as truth, you know, is sometimes like all one has to grasp for in a time in which people are fearing destruction, or it's like, oh, this import from America, gender, that's, that's, that's what's destroying that's us. That's destroying our lives. It's, it's like, well, But really, but how, how do we think about that intersection? And I think we need a more textured analysis. I don't think we can go back absolutely. to, this is the real oppression and all this oh, is secondary. Absolutely. It's like, no, no, we've got, we've got to have like Gramsci in mind here. You know, what's the articulation? Absolutely. How do we describe it? And the left has failed because we on the left have been unable to put forward a vision that seizes the imagination and hearts, minds, and souls of people. I agree. Unable to have institutional capacity for that vision. Yeah. That well, you deliver. do it. You're the one we look to, Cornell. You well, do it. <laughs> we, we, we all. Yeah, but listen, listen. Gramsci says 
The decisive element in every situation is the permanently organised and long prepared force which can be put into the field when it is judged that a situation is favourable and it can be favourable only insofar as such a force exists and is full of fighting spirit. Therefore the essential task is that of systematically and patiently ensuring that this force is formed, developed and rendered ever more homogeneous, compact and self-aware. He's talking there about articulation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Elaboration. Yeah. And that's that's, that's exactly right. I mean, this is translated by Pete Buttigieg's father, yes, right. our dear brother Joseph. Yeah. The great translator of Gramsci, the Gramsci Institute in Rome that we used to go together. Yeah. And brother Pete, you know, he's neoliberal centrist. I love him. He's part of the family. He's just wrong on a lot of some of these issues. <laughs> but I love, 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 love him like a son. But the thing is, is that for Gramsci, He's presupposing a party in place, even though he's in prison. He's yeah. in a fascist prison. Yeah. They've got institutional capacity yeah. in Italy at that time. You mm -hmm. see. We're lucky to have journals. They had a communist party. Yeah. There's a qualitative difference in yeah. terms of the ability to have a robust conversation within an institution that has the capacity to bring people together, mobilize, galvanize, not just for demonstrations, but to sustain the structures over time. Yeah. That's what we lack on the law. Yeah. of position. Yeah, absolutely. Gramsci understood yeah. that. Okay, well, um, this clock keeps saying different things. So it's going to <laughs> <laughs> I want to expand the focus a little bit. Sure, sure. A little bit, um, because some of the questions that came in, actually very recently, uh, I got these from Ollie on Thursday, really good. And um, I want to put the cat amongst the pigeons a little bit here. Cat among the pigeons, good God. Whoever, I know the cat, who the pigeons are. The cat, we're, a pig, we're pigeons. You're, you're pigeons. <laughs> but look, uh, this Let's is question. identity politics. Pigeon rights. Pigeon rights. Question of 39. So thank you, question of 39. Um, Connor West. Yes, yes. Wrote in the Washington Post regarding... Howard University's closure of its classics department. Yes. Oh. This is a spiritual catastrophe. And the questioner asks, in which way could the engagement with the old, frequently shared texts be said to be a spiritual exercise? What type of spirituality does the, the classical canon or the engagement with it engender? Is it a problem for classics as a spiritual exercise that classics are currently weaponized by the far right? I thought that was interesting because here we have uh, <laughs> Judith and I taught a class together on Greek tragedy. Yeah, I wish I and, could have been in that class. And it was not, it was not a conventional class on Greek learn, tragedy. A lot to learn. But it was about Greek tragedy. Yes. And, uh, and I know Cornell's got you know, very interesting views on Sophocles and many others. So how do you see that? How do you see that? Because that, this is another symptom of, uh, of, kind of where we are. Um, well, one is the how brother, do you defend you know, the, the catastrophes you... are just okay. so overwhelming. We need every source and resource to be mobilized, intellectual, moral, political, spiritual. And there is no doubt that the best of the Socratic legacy of Athens and the best of the prophetic legacy of Jerusalem are crucial sources that can be mobilized to bring critique to bear on structures of domination, on forms of dogma, on how we come to terms with forms of death. Now that doesn't mean there aren't rich resources among indigenous peoples in, in, in Africa and Timbuktu University in Asia, of course. 
But the notion that somehow we in this particular historical moment that has been disproportionately shaped by Europe at its worst and at its best, the European ideals and the European crimes. Mm -hmm. Every civilization got ideals and crimes, right? So that, so that a place like Howard University, which is where the black bourgeoisie has come from, you see, they historically have always been pulling from the Socratic legacy. Benjamin Mays, we can go on and on, Mordecai Johnson, Tony Morrison, we go on and on and on. And the Socratic legacy too. But yes, you got the, you got the rich black intellectual traditions that are conversant, but also voices, and not just extensions of Socrates, extensions of of Hebrew scripture and so forth, the creative appropriations and interpretations. So to, to, to make that less and less available to a younger generation that's already dealing with a dumbed down, market-driven education. And that's not true just for Howard, it's for Harvard, Yale, Princeton, UC Berkeley. You yeah. can see the commodification and the bureaucratization of the university in which the dumbing down takes place. That's not right-wing discourse, it's mm -hmm. the, the truth. Mm -hmm. Because the careerism and the opportunism generate a myopic vision and short-term calculation. That's just the truth. That's the situation. So I had to invite people to say, well, the right wing is in love with Plato just like you. So what? <laughs> We're when fighting was, about that. <laughs> when I was in Charlottesville, these sick white brothers of the Klan and the neo-Nazis, they were listening to Motown. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, oh. you're going to kill me, and ki but want to listen to my music. Yeah. That's a human thing. Uh, Contradictory all the way down. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So the, the sense of, this is, you know, since when does the right wing have a monopoly on the great classical works of any civilization, let alone the West? Yeah, yeah. They, it's, 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 it's sad that we even have to debate that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's sad. We, Dante under exile with bounty on his head. He becomes a right-wing target, a right-wing object that's theirs? No. Dante's mine. Yeah. And that's just the beginning. You see what I mean? Yes, I'm with you. Absolutely. I mean, you know, not all classics courses are taught um, to, to communicate the message that the great ideals of our civilization are to be found in these texts. In fact, mm, well, that's true. many, you know, people teach that's classics true. in order to think about war, to think about slavery. Mm -hmm. I mean, the great work of Moses Finley on ancient slavery oh, is, yes. was part of a classics class that I took early on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the whole question of how can you constitute a democracy when women are not part of it and, and foreigners are not and they're the, the, the so-called barbarians who uh, don't speak proper uh, proper language because they're speaking another language. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it gives us a, a condensed framework for thinking about very fundamental questions, including grief, rage, murder, forgiveness, mm -hmm. the relationship between law and justice. Mm -hmm. But also, let's remember that, uh, you know, Antigone, a, a play that's important to all of us, really, mm -hmm. um, that was restaged on, on the, the rubbles in Palestine where homes used to be. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, we, get, we get to reappropriate those and let them speak to another uh, audience. Look, there's a Kurdish appropriation of Antigone. There's a, there are several Latin American. There's one in, there was one in Mexico that was lamenting the killing of women. Like, oh, these, these... Nelson Mandela was involved in a production in Robbins Island. There you go. I mean, but these, right? these texts don't belong to the left wow. or the right. We need to actually appropriate them and let them speak for yeah, what absolutely. we need them to speak for and to, to let those histories resonate. So, 
I mean, I'm all against the idea that, oh, these are the great texts of Western civilization and they contain the values. No, but they do produce condensed scenes of strife and conflict that allow us to have broader conversations. Absolutely. There, there weren't one of many. Um, the people like Otto Quaison have written whole books on the post-colonial and colonial uh, appropriations of tragedy uh, for revolutionary purposes. Yeah. Um, so we we need to we need to remember that that these are resources uh, among many, right? Not the only That's one, right. not the Absolutely. most important, but they are resources among many upon which we have to draw, and people have drawn for, for, for really important purposes. And each of them are marked by internal contradiction and strife. And they used to be at the University of Essex when I was a, a student and then a, a teacher, and this was, a, you know, it was subsequently scrapped. There was a course called the Enlightenment, there was a critique of the Enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of the Enlightenment through the lens of you know Western Marxism and Adorno, and you, you see how every Enlightenment text is a shadow text, yeah. right? Montesquieu's Persian Letters, Rousseau, you, you pick Diderot's Rameau's nephew. Everything is split. Everything is divided. Here we have a picture of what Hegel would call self-alienated spirit, and it's you learn that you see that war Absolutely. taking place historically, and that is empowering, is it not? It gives you ammunition, Very much so. gives you stuff I know in my use. own intellectual formation, uh, the great Raymond Williams' book on modern tragedy. Huh. Mm -hmm. And then Terry Eagleton, you know, yes. builds on in so many, so many ways. It meant a lot because, um, you know, I started reading Kierkegaard, so I already had a deep, deep sensitivity of the unlighted side of the human condition. Uh. And to have a leftist discourse that was tied, that was secular, but was critical of mm -hmm. some of the more sunny sides, that, that, was, that was critical, that, that was tied to the sunny sides and critical of any tragic sensibility. Williams opened that up for me. Yeah. And so did Eagleton. Yeah. And by the time, you know, you get to your work on Antigone, your powerful work on the tragic. Now, I'm with the tragic comics, so I'm with Chekhov. You all know that. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. Chekhov is deeper than okay. all of them, but we don't have time to get into that okay. right now. Okay. I know Brother Glenn, we don't want to exclude you, Brother, yeah. on this now. Talk to us. You want to jump on in on some of this? <laughs> Yeah, no, well, no, it's funny, um, you know, it, it, it's bringing back a lot of old memories of, um, of, of academia. I, we, we, I'll share with you what we discovered before we came on stage, which was I, I was feeling some sort of trauma about this event right as I was about to do it. And then I remembered, I'm pretty sure that I had Professor Butler as a professor in philosophy, I think in my freshman year of college when I arrived onto campus, extremely arrogant, believing I knew everything. And I walked into philosophy class. It might've been sophomore year. It was a, I believe it was philosophy of existentialism. And we were talking about Sartre and his views of gender. And I think there was text with Simone de Beauvoir and we were debating that. And I raised my hand to challenge Professor Butler thinking I had a, a great argument and she obliterated it. And I think it was the first time ever up until then and maybe after when I was kind of left speechless, but I, you know, and it took me a few decades, I guess, to get over that trauma and be able to re-enter a conversation with, with Judith. But I think that the reason I look back on those, that experience so positively, despite, despite those kinds of experiences is because one of the things that academia does is it fosters 
a discourse where everything can be challenged. I found that idea super interesting that, you know, you look at the Western canon and instead of saying, we need to get rid of it because it's there's other things that that matter that have been excluded for too long. You can look at it and say, no, it can provide a window into questioning pieties and orthodoxies. And this is the thing that Cornell said after I talked about Kyle Rittenhouse that I, I found so important was this idea that in so many of our societal sectors, certainly journalism, I think academia, though I don't want to speak authoritatively about it on a panel of two people who work in academia when I don't, but it's certainly my impression in lots of other places, there has been a lessening of the ability to engage in dissent, engage in this kind of discourse uh, in a way that's constructive. And I you know, have loved the last couple of hours of being able to have this conversation about fraught topics with three people who in our careers have often spawned a lot of controversy with our views, who think differently about a lot of different things, who nonetheless can have this conversation without personal strife. And I, I wish so much that this was the prevailing ethos in so many more of our key institutional sectors, because to me, this is where constructive dialogue happens, where thought happens. I've spent, as I said, the last two hours thinking and listening as much as I have speaking. And I wish there was a lot more of that, where there was less coercive pressure to embrace orthodoxy and more of an attempt to convince and persuade and include divergent views. Um, but let me mess up this happy That was a quote agreement. from Sister yeah. Judith, wasn't it? That was a quote from, that was a quote <laughs> from Judith. Right. We just want the footnotes in here. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be full footnotes afterwards. Now, uh, the last question I got here, which I just thought, because this will, could spice things up. Uh, this is question 40. Uh, the last question that was sent in is to Judith, but I'd like it for, for all of us to think about this. Um, Judith, you spoke in a recent lecture about a mandate and the need for a mandate in relation to the vaccine. If the mandate is for the necessary structural changes in order to remedy harms carried out against bodies that matter, is it possible that this mandate could not be a vaccine mandate? Isn't it to practice population, population level bio or necro politics with vaccines exactly to say that there are bodies that do not matter to us? i.e. those bodies and lives which may be destroyed by a vaccine mandate. And I wanted to just see where we are with that, because it's mm. interesting, because it, mm. it says a culture war, and in terms of social division, the inflammation of social division, here we are in whatever stage of the pandemic this turns out to be, with um, mm. a very strange situation where legislation is being proposed in countries like Germany, uh, with regard to the unvaccinated, and uh, this this does raise issues uh, around. I don't know who counts, who doesn't count, who's in, who's out, what one is free to do and not to do. I wondered whether we thought any of this, any of these issues, identity policies and culture wars, we could think about that through the lens of the the pandemic debates around max vaccines and mandates and such like. Anything come to mind? Well, I have to say that I, I don't remember using the word mandate, so I don't know in what context I apparently used it. I don't it. have a footnote for that. Oh, okay, no. because uh, that would help me uh, respond more thoughtfully to the question. 
Um, I understand um, that on the left and the right, and perhaps uh, in the spectrum between, that there are many people who worry that the health crisis is um, augmenting state powers and in particular forms of state surveillance. Um, uh, yes, and also the um, um, the circumscription of uh, of uh, personal liberties. Um, but I also, uh, on the other hand, I'm I'm I think that this is a chance for us to rethink our commitment to individualism um, as part of the spirit of capitalism, mm. and um, that uh, it's. When I when I when I when I wear a mask um, in a situation where I'm bound to be um, close to other people, I'm not just protecting my life uh, or even expressing my personal choice. Uh, I'm also indicating that I'm bound to the person I am near, and that person could be an utter stranger. That mm -hmm. my my life is tied to that life, and in some sense, the mask uh, gives a kind of provisional. Uh, material form uh, to that social bond. So mm, I'm obligated to care for others um, and I would hope that they would care for me even if we don't know each other's names or don't speak each other's language be, be, precisely because um, our bodies are such and our, our the way in which we live together we are constantly taking in bits of each other. We we share the air, we share surfaces, we, we sometimes share food, we um, you know, it's a Lucretian <laughs> problem of bits of the other getting into me and bits of mm -hmm. me getting into the other. I mean, in a way, we are constantly ingesting uh, other people's worlds and they are ingesting ours. And that's part of what it is to be a body in the world. We're not just these closed uh, entities. We're, we're, we have a lot of porosity. Yeah. And, that, and each uh, angle of porosity is a social relation. So... When I talk about vulnerability, is not just my personal attribute or my individual condition, but so, my relation to others, yeah. or my mm -hmm. relation to infrastructure, or my relation to the environment. Something about who I am and the relations that uh, sustain me and that ought to sustain me and you is being articulated in that way. So I, I am hoping that we can, from this uh, pandemic, um, elaborate a deeper sense of interdependency Dr. Dr. Mm. King talked about that yeah, um, yeah. as a as a crucial dimension. Robin Kelly talks about that. Um, uh, I'm I'm hoping that we can have a a a, a way a, re, a a way of rethinking our embodied sociality, if I may speak that way, yeah. and and the ways in which our lives are implicated in each other's lives. So I do want governments to embrace that principle and to represent that principle, but I also understand the other position that. If um, if this state of exception increases the powers of the state to survey, to regulate, to invade lives, we're in trouble. Um, but I That's want a, a different kind yeah. of government. You know, I'm not yeah, I'm not against government. I want I want I'm still in favor of good government <laughs> and good health care, uh, right? Affordable health care, right? Accessible health care. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a left liberal in this way. I'm 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 not. I'm not. I don't want to call down all government services because I'm afraid of um, um, terrifying forms of state sovereignty. I, I want to struggle to separate those things, and that's 
um, that's what I think a, a responsible democratic socialism can do. Mm -hmm. So that, See, I that's where I think there's always a, a tension between civic virtue and personal liberty. And, and that tension will always be there. The question is whether it is going to be creative or destructive. I tend to have a tilt toward personal liberty because uh, I'm always concerned about the rights of the dissenting voices. And I come from a people who've been incarcerated, assassinated, marginalized when the voices are raised in the name of white supremacist civic virtue. Mm. You see? Mm -hmm. And yet civic virtue is crucial. But when you have such a weak and feeble civic soul craft, and so personal liberty becomes licentiousness, selfishness, I don't care about public life, I don't care about common good, I just care about myself, then you got something else going on. And the question becomes, through the use of practical wisdom and phronesis, how do you stay on the tightrope with the best of civic virtues and the best of personal liberties such that public health is addressed and yet people don't feel coerced and forced. You see, the coercive civic virtue is an oxymoron in a certain sense. And even the founding fathers at their best, the Madisons and others, and I have strong critiques of Madison, but they were wrestling with this tension within a very truncated yeah. American democracy. And so... Um, but isn't, isn't the point to cultivate, I mean, you talk about soul craft, which is beautiful, right. Um, yes. But to cultivate an ethos of care, absolutely right, and absolutely. that goes beyond the family, goes beyond the local community, the local That's religion. Right. Like I'm not just looking out for my own; I'm looking absolutely. out for people I don't know, and people I don't know are looking out for me. And I think that we need to build that ethos somehow, precisely so that um, a simple request, like you know, acting in such a way that you do not imperil the lives, the life of another human does Absolutely. not feel like coercion, but feels like a love of a life, way of being a way of being together, world, a way of being in the world, a way of, of, of expanding and care And civic education is supposed to play a role, yes. right? The cultivation of critical sensibility and the maturation of a loving soul caring, concerned about, about others. I yeah. mean, my, my, my beloved wife, Anahita, you know, she has a deep suspicion of mandate. A mandate should come from Iran. Yeah. They got all kind of mandates in that fascist state. Yeah. All kind of mandates, sliding down slippery slopes, keeping track of people and so forth and so on. So I understand the source of her suspicion. I've got similar suspicion in terms of coming from a country that was democratic, but enslaved and Jim Crow and Jane Crow and lynched and terrorized and traumatized mm -hmm. up until George Floyd, up until the present moment. So that kind of libertarian impulse, balanced with the civic virtue, balanced with the kind of you know, rich social democratic, democratic socialists, even council communists of Gordon and Panikok mm. and Rosa Luxemburg, mm. Soviets without Bolsheviks, yeah, workers' organizations. That's part of my tradition too. You see, that's what makes me a little different, than brother Bernie. Bernie's still yeah. kind of New Deal liberal yeah. social democratic. Yeah. that's revolutionary in America. We know that, but in terms of the <laughs> larger spectrum. We want workers' organizations with the rights and the liberties with democratic yeah. forms across the board. Glenn Greenwald, what was your, what's your view on this? Yeah, I think, I think COVID is a great way to end the conversation because I think it's going to be the defining uh, event of, of our time comparable probably to only to, to the 9-11 attack in terms of at least political 
and cultural debates in the West, in the United States and in, in the Western part of the world. For me, 9-11 was my entry point into politics. And the framework that caused me to do that was a fear had emerged about a threat that was very real. And that fear was being exploited and in my view, exaggerated on purpose in order to vest further power in the hands of the state and to place the population in greater levels of fear in order to breed an acquiescence or a conformity, an inability to question the state, which had postured itself as the protective wall that was gonna keep us all safe from this threat. And I see COVID and, and the, the pattern of COVID in a very similar way in that, you know, Judith referenced this, and I, I think it's worth emphasizing that the power to do things like order people to stay in their homes and to shut down businesses and to quarantine and to close borders, these are incredibly dangerous powers. They prevent citizens from organizing with, with one another to protest people in power, to go out on the streets and, and organize. They prevent people from engaging in the most basic movement. And the fact that almost two years later, we're still accepting these kinds of extraordinarily draconian powers, even with the arrival of a scene that is essentially uh, safe and effective, um, is alarming to me, as is the intolerance of dissent that has become part of this fabric, whereby even though health authorities have been repeatedly wrong about things in May, in March of 2020, if you went onto YouTube and encouraged people to wear masks, you would have been in contravention to the consensus of health authorities, the World Health Organization, Dr. Fauci, who were saying masks are not only unnecessary, but potentially dangerous. And this kind of framework emerged that no questioning of scientific consensus or the consensus of authorities was permissible. People were removed from social media platforms if they questioned the origins of COVID, even though there's now an open debate about it. And, and those kind of things are, are alarming to me. The fact that a population over two years has been trained to never question the pronouncements of authorities that are often wrong to accept the assertion of draconian powers, even if well-intentioned, without sometimes asking whether these powers are, are excessive. And I think the vision that Judith drew is one I, I really am genuinely inspired by, the idea that we all need to overcome our, our sense that we're all kind of individualized, that we don't care for one another, that we have no responsibility to anybody else. But as Cornell said, I find it very difficult to see how that vision can be fulfilled by threatening and coercing and forcing people upon pain of losing their jobs in the middle of a pandemic if they don't comply with what they're told to do, that doesn't seem like it's gonna foster social cohesion to me or the idea that we're all in this together. I think it's gonna kind of do the opposite. It's gonna breed mistrust on the part of institutions that if they're trying to tell me that I don't have the right to choose for myself what things I put into my body or my children's body. I think it's going to breed a lot of resentment. And, 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 and I worry that instead of trying to use persuasion, trying to use an appeal to people's common humanity to restore trust in our common fate, where we all are tied together, that there's kind of a punitive strain that has emerged whereby we're telling people 
we don't know how effective cloth masks are, but if you don't wear them, you're going to be banned from all sorts of involvement in public life. Um, even though I'm vaccinated and protected, I still demand that you do to the point where I want you to lose your job if you're not yet convinced that it's safe for you and your children and you don't obey. And I, I just, I'm concerned about some of the enduring political, cultural, and social outcomes from the way in which the pandemic has been discussed and managed and it's centralized power even more in the biggest corporations, Amazon, Facebook, Google, have all gotten much wealthier, much more powerful. Small businesses have gone out of business because of lockdowns and governments around the world have much greater power in their, their hands too to censor and to keep citizens locked down or quarantined and, and in obedience. And I, I definitely worry about the long-term implications of that while obviously acknowledging that COVID is a serious health crisis. It's interesting. I think maybe this, we do have a disagreement. I'm a little bit more uh, skeptical of personal liberty these days. Mm, uh, mm, I think I mm. was always on the side of personal liberty. I'm not so sure what the personhood of personal li liberty is and if that's a mm. form of individualism that actually is governed by a kind of death drive. Um, mm -hmm, mm. You know, Glenn, you're in, you're in Brazil and as you know, um, Bolsonaro has been um, accused in the International Criminal Court, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, crimes against humanity because he has failed to implement health policies that would have saved many people's lives. Um, and the, the lives that are gone are very often lives of people who, are, who have been living in um, uh, tentative shelters or um, who, are, who are poor and, um, and, and don't, don't have the same kinds of protections as, um, as others who are um, uh, more safely housed. Uh, I, um, I think that we have to look at people like Trump or um, Bolsonaro as appealing to this, this sense of personal liberty, like I don't have to do anything to save anyone else. I don't have to, I don't have to change anything about my life. Uh, I, I, ref, I refuse all regulations in the name of my personal liberty because mm -hmm. that's my personhood and that's my individualism. And it, mm -hmm. it, it, it encourages a form of, of egoism that doesn't recognize the deep ways in which we're connected to each other. And either we're going to recognize those ways and save some lives, or we're gonna to fail to recognize those ways and go down killing or dying with the flag of personal liberty. Yeah. It's like, I, mm -hmm. I think we've got a death drive issue that uses the idea of personal liberty. Like I, I you know, That's people, good, like, people who are just, you know, they don't care, I'm not vaxxed, I've, don't wear a mask. I'm up against you. I'm near you on the subway. You die. I don't care because I'm expressing my civil liberty. Now, I think um, as well that um, we have to ask who is dying, right? In the U.S., we see it's black and brown people at, at, at very high rates. It's the elderly. It's people yeah. who are, uh, yeah. are most vulnerable, um, people who are unhoused. Uh, well, we... We could say, I don't want to obey a mandate or for there to be a mandate because I want my personal freedom, my ability to work. I understand that. But if your personal freedom and your ability to work comes at the expense of other people's lives, then you have a quandary. And we should be putting that quandary out front and center. Absolutely. Because, of course, it's good to have 
free, freedom of movement. Of course we need to work, but of course we need to save lives. And my fear is when it's personal liberty versus the uh, intensification of state powers and their surveillance mechanisms in particular, that we are no longer able to have that conversation, mm, mm. right? Put, put both values that's on the true. table. But see, that's exactly what I mean by licentiousness in terms of the ways in which personal liberty language is mobilized yes. for licentiousness. Yes. Because even John Stuart Mill, you got a harm principle. Yes, you do have a harm principle. There's no liberty without constraint. Yeah. There's no freedom without constraint. Yes, right? but it's not so just that, that. So there has to be some accountability. Yeah. If you're talking about impunity, the way Trump and the others talk about it, yeah. that has nothing to do with liberty. I understand That's that. Just licentious. Well, yes, it's, a yes, one, yes, it's one yes. thing for me to say I must constrain myself in order not to do harm, and then I am still here in the position of the individual calculating what's harm, what's not, and he taught us how to calculate. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but right. there might be an ethics that's beyond calculation. In other words, I'm thinking about my life, which means others are thinking about it in the same way, right. and we are linked in this living world, in this on this planet, right. right? Which is why the interdependency that we need to understand to fight COVID is also the interdependency we need to understand to fight climate destruction. I agree. And so agree. And we need a, I, I would call it a communist ontology, well, quite it's frankly. It's a solidarity well, that's, that's thicker no, than I any would. concession I, of I think liberty. we need a radical social ontology. We need to rethink selfhood, its boundaries, its openings, to have a, a completely different ethics and, 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 and a politics of care. Um, so I'm I'm pushing against the personal liberty folk right now. Yeah, no. I Sorry, I know understand. I know that's extreme. Uh, can, I, can, can I just interject one? Yeah, yeah. please. Yeah. Who is it? The just one, just, oh. No, no, I, I didn't mean I didn't mean to interrupt. I just no, go on, go I on. one point about Brazil that I, I find so interesting, and I, I, I no, and I think it illustrates your point really well that in Brazil you have Jair Bolsonaro, who, as you absolutely correctly uh, explained, has been incredibly reckless at best in terms of the mismanagement of the COVID pandemic, clearly causing all kinds of deaths that were avoidable. And he has as well engaged in the discourse that vaccines for him are something he doesn't think he needs because he has natural immunity, has been encouraging people from the beginning to go out without masks and the like. And yet at the same time, in Brazil, there's almost no vaccine hesitancy that there is in the United States, it's something like 95, 97% of the adult population has been voluntarily going to get vaccinated. And the reason for that is because they have a faith and trust in the Brazilian healthcare system that goes all the way back to when Lula broke the patent on HIV medication, <laughs> saying he refuses to watch people die of a preventable disease because they can't afford the medication. Brazil has made huge strides in vaccinating people and providing a, an amazingly robust public health service. And so instead of forcing people to go and do it, you've, you've convinced them to trust the, the, the system that they have their best interest in mind. And so you have almost no vaccine hesitancy in Brazil, despite having a president telling them they shouldn't get the vaccine or don't need it. Whereas in the United States, a lot of the people who have been vaccine hesitant some of them have been obviously conservatives who have bought into this, what you might want to call death wish, uh, personal liberty if you want, but a lot of them as well have been overwhelmingly black and brown communities, poor people who have come not to trust, you know, health authorities. They remember experiments in the 20th century and, and, and the, the malicious intent behind them. And that's why I say, I think this vision of bringing us together is going to have to be about 
restoring people's faith and trust in the institutions we want them to listen to instead of threatening and coercing them and forcing them to upon pain of punishment to obey. I think that's the much more kind of cohesive framework for getting people to, to, to think differently about the world. Kind of approaching the uh, closing statement time, nine minutes to go, right? Okay. Who was it that said that freedom is a good horse to ride, but you've got to ride it somewhere? <laughs> Matthew Arnold? I'm sorry, yeah. freedom is a good horse to ride, but you've got to ride it. Yeah. That's the first time I've heard that horse being ridden <laughs> like that. Freedom itself is, I, 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 I'm, I'm legitimate on this. That, yes, you know, yes, I'm, yes. I'm not having I mean, this is, freedom is the problem. And it's how you then rethink what it means to be a, a, a person, a moral person, um, apart from individualism. But that's... That would, that, take us, that would take us somewhere But it else. raises a deep issue of Dostoevsky. How many people really want to be free? Right. Are they willing to follow a Pied Piper right. to evade the serious weight and gravitas of what freedom is all about? Mm -hmm. And that cuts across class, color, culture, sexual orientation. So That's where authoritarianism yeah. comes in, you see. So you have to have a courage. You've got to talk about the enabling virtue of courage, and that's got to be part of your yeah. conception of who you are in your movements, in your mosques, your churches, your synagogues, your educational institutions across the board. And what we love about the tragic is what? Those agents had courage. <laughs> hitting up against a nange, hitting up against a constraint. We don't live in a moment in which courage is widely oh. spread. Oh. What we love about the <laughs> A lot of cowardliness out there, oh. I'm telling you, it comes in different colors too. No, what we, yeah, yes, what we love about tragic figures is that they, there's courage, but there's also that they were, they were not full agents. <laughs> their agency was partial, and they knew their agency was partial. But what does that mean, they weren't full well, agents? Well, when they were acting, they were being acted through by the past. Oh. Antigone, Oedipus, they were being, oh. something was being channeled through them. And somehow, the miracle of Greek tragedies, we see that. We see individuals oh. ravaged yeah. by the death drive, yeah. actually. Well, it's, a, it's the structure of the curse, Yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but sometimes people are able to evade the curse or disempower it. Um, but um, it's true, we all act in ways, we think we are the ground of our own action, but many historical forces act through us and we are formed. We are formed and disposed in certain ways. We're not determined. We're still free. Right, yes. right, but it's right, a struggle. Right. Yeah. But the best yes. of traditions can work through us. I mean, my yes. mother works through me every day. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to keep track of the best. She had the worst, too. Yeah. But that's Gadamer's point, though, yeah. isn't it? That, that we're constituted by yeah. antecedent practices, figures, discourses, yeah. stories, symbols, yeah. and so forth. Right? My mother never shuts up. No, but she loves you to death. <laughs> and she's proud she's of you. She's proud of you. And I think she got good grounds for being proud of you, brother. Anyway, so let's, let's move to our closing statement. Maybe we'll, we'll take it in moment. Moment. Maybe yeah. we should give the, uh, give the floor firstly to Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. So Glenn, how would you like to close things out in whichever way you would like? Well, first of all, I just want to, uh, again, emphasize how thoroughly I've enjoyed this discussion. Um, it is rare to be able to sit and take the time to examine these kind of complex issues in a deliberative way with people who 
you have a, enough in common with to have a constructive discussion and enough that you see things differently with and you bring a different life experience to to be able to examine some of the, the clashes as well in, in a way that is constructive and i'm always really grateful when i can participate in a discussion that is civil and thoughtful and constructive and yet still has the integrity of everybody kind of um, advocating for their ideas in in the best way that they can and and so i want to thank the, the organizers again for such a great event and for my fellow panelists for making such a discussion great discussion um you know i think that one of the things that has emerged most from everything we've all been saying is that we think that there is a social pathology that is overarching in which in whatever ways we all kind of are being far too hostile with one another, thinking about one another over here in our camps and capable of forming dialogue and capable of forming spiritual connections and capable of creating a society that's based on the idea that even though we are individuals, we also are going back to our roots, social and political animals and part of a society and inevitably that's gonna be the case. And there's always going to be this conflict between, on the one hand, our craving to be part of a society and our need to be part of a society, and on the other, our desire to be free individuals. And those conflicts are often going to be irresolvable in a clear way. I think that one of the things that for me is exacerbating this problem is that so much of our discourse that's designed on its face to bring us together is instead having the opposite effect of tearing us apart. And I am particularly worried about discourse that emphasizes our differences in a way that obfuscates our commonality. And we began by talking about the various ways that identity politics can be used and deployed in the understanding of what it means based on how it's used. And you know, I think that there has been enormous strides made in the best parts of identity politics, which is the idea that in our society, every time a privilege or a right or an opportunity is determined based upon our immutable characteristics or who we are as a person, as opposed to our actions, that is something pernicious and toxic and that we want to fight against. And that is the kind of thing that to me has fostered a greater social cohesion. What I see working in the opposite direction is the kind of politics, the kind of discourse, the kind of cultural framework that encourages us to see one another not as fellow human beings interlinked with one another, but that forces us to see ourselves first and foremost as members of separate groups and is constantly reinforcing the idea that the way in which we ought to be understood, the way in which we ought to be treated, the way in which we ought to be talked to and about is based on memberships in those groups. And, and so, you know, I think it's great when everyone can first agree on the goal. And I think we did have a clear common vision of how society can be better. Once that happens, then it's just a question of figuring out how best to construct the politics that fosters that ultimate vision. And I think, thinking about the ways identity politics, as we've talked about it, can foster that in ways that it can impede that is a really important project. So I'm glad we spent the last couple of hours exploring that. Glenn Greenwood. Cornel West. 
Well, I agree with Brother Glenn. This has been a wonderful conversation. We, we thank our brothers and sisters at the Holberg Committee for bringing us together. I think together. the moderation has been particularly good. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Simon. The MC, because we know he's Brother, brother Simon's a musician, too. But I think of that wonderful line in Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, examples of a go-kart of judgment. <laughs> examples. How do we attend to exemplary movements, exemplary institutions, exemplary practices, exemplary human beings? Because again, I come back, most of human history, the history of organized greed, institutionalized hatred and envy and resentment and deceit that's what it is. Mm. You can't get around it, whatever ism you want to call it, right? And so the question becomes, what are the countervailing figures, voices, institutions against those hounds of hell? Mm. Now, when I was coming along in Shiloh Baptist Church, we were told, if the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. Mm. And the question becomes, as intellectuals, what kind of heaven are we leaving behind? in terms of our critiques, our witnesses, our compassion, our willingness to live and die, our willingness to be nonconformist, our willingness to bear witness against the crowd. That's the in but not of quality. That's right. Not just the prophetic legacies of Jerusalem, but of any serious thinker who has a deep vocation. Mm. And that's what all three of you all exemplify. In your own practices, and every practice is going to be, you know, fallen and fallible and, mm. and finite in that sense, you see. So that in the end, you know, there's going to be a question of can we pass on these various kinds of examples tied to a joy. Mm. Not the joyless quest for insatiable pleasure of, of, of late capitalist culture, mm. but a genuine joy. Yeah. We started with Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> he's playing his guitar and he's singing some truths. He's got a deep joy. David Bowie's the same way. Aretha Franklin's the same way. Our young folk need to find joy in quest for truth, beauty, goodness, and if some of them yeah. religious like me, of the yeah. holy. But we're always over against the grain. Always. Last word goes to Judith Butler. Oh, um, well, thank you all for being here. And what, a, what an honor to be in conversation again uh, with you, Simon, <laughs> and you, Cornell, and... Glenn, to see you again, I just so apologize that I destroyed your young <laughs> aspirations to, to have your own point of view on Sartre and, and de Beauvoir. I, I, I'm afraid I do have strong views on that issue and <laughs> probably was less open-minded than I should have been. Um, I guess I, I still want to just come back to where I began with the, the question of uh, caricature, you know, like... Uh, like wokeness or cancel culture or um, being so rooted in your identity you can only talk to people or uh, countenance the views of people who are just like you. And sometimes, I, I mean, certainly we all see bits of that in our world. Mm -hmm. We see most of it, I think, on social media, occasionally in the classroom, but most of my classrooms are actually more open-minded than that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a lot mm -hmm. of canceling and calling out. There might be some hard questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there might yeah. be a demand to be heard. Mm -hmm. But even people who speak from their location and their history saying, listen, you need to hear from me. I, I come from this history. I come from this colonized region, region of the world. I come from 
this history of violence, um, uh, they are addressing someone who is not themselves and not like them. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they actually mm -hmm. want to be heard, and that mode of address mm -hmm. uh, might be the Levinasian moment. Uh, it's, it's an ethical demand on the other to listen up, um, to yeah. allow your frameworks to be challenged, to live with the discomfort of a challenge, to hear the, the legitimate claim in somebody else's angry voice. Um, so I, I think we need to give each other a little more space and have a different kind of listening practice um, so that we can um, revise the conceptual and political frameworks that haven't been working for a whole lot of people. We can't just clutch them like, oh, they, they worked for so long. I don't, who are these people? They're, they're fragmenting. They're deviating. It's like, no, maybe they're actually asking you to revise. And sometimes that's painful, especially from a position of privilege does mean losing privilege. It means losing the presumption that your way of looking at the world is the universal way of looking at the world. But that's a grief, that's a loss that has to be endured, right? I mean, I've always thought white supremacists have to endure a certain kind of loss. They are not, they are not superior. They must live through that loss and learn to live in a different world, right? There's rage, but there's also grief. I'd say go in the way of grief because yeah. that kind of grieving is going to open up the world to a more, uh, a more equal, more caring, more communicative, more joyful place of cohabitation and of social transformation moving forward. So, um, I think what you say about mourning in precarious life and relationships to that and, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm aware even in, in Brazil, you know, people would say to me, look, uh, if gay, families are okay, if gay marriage is okay, then you're saying that the idea of the family, the heterosexual family, as stipulated by the Bible, I said, where did it stipulate that exactly? I'm not sure it's really the Bible, it's a certain reading of the Bible. Anyway, that, that idea of the family, that, that will lose its sense of being natural and universal. It's like, lose it. You can still have it. Yeah. You, can, you like your heterosexual family, you can be right in there. You can have it, but you might be living next to somebody else who has a different set of intimate associations. Maybe gay marriage, maybe gay family, might be blended, might be any number of things. Uh, but all you've lost is your sense of universality, necessity, and naturalness. And that's a, that's a good loss to endure. Because it, it will, in the end, you know, connect you more broadly to the human community. So, I don't know. That's my view. So, wherever you are in the world, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed that. And um, we thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, thank Simon. You. And uh, you know, listen to some Curtis Mayfield. Listen to some Curtis. Listen to whatever music gives you joy, and yeah. feel some joy on a on a Saturday evening wherever All right. you are. All and, right. Uh, thank you very much to the Holberg. Okay. Okay. For making this happen. Thank you very much. Thank you.